it, and you think for a religion to support that, something really had to be wrong with it. Now, if you have a religion that has that much wrong with it, the people who benefit from that religion have to invest a whole lot of energy to tell themselves it's great and it's right and it's the only way you're allowed to think. So if I put that kind of a historical framework on it, and then I realize, oh, no wonder why the religion that I grew up with invested so much energy in making us feel that we were great and also in keeping us from learning the full truth about our history. <laughs> I, I start to get a feel of why there's so much intensity around it. Welcome to another episode of Grown Up Christian. I'm Casey. I'm Sam. I'm Jeremiah. And it's been a wild week. I'm sure that you all are have been sitting around thinking, I wish it was Tuesday so I knew what to think about this Supreme Court ruling. And you're in luck. It's Tuesday. And we're here to give you your talking points for, for, the, uh, for the rest of the time. So, yeah. I'd like to think we've established ourselves as pillars of authority on pretty much everything there is when it comes to information that exists in this world. So, yeah, right. I think we'll just send out a text to like a mailing list with like today's counterpoints for arguments you get into at work. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If they say, then you will respond with, I think that. That was basically my apologetics courses, right? You're like, oh, well, they're going to tell you that. And a good response is, and then you say it, and in real life, it doesn't work. And people have- why are there still monkeys? Yeah, (laughs) yes, that's one of them. (laughs) And they're like, you you have no idea what you're talking about. Theory is, do you know what it means for something to be a theory? Oh, my God. (laughs) That's another good one. Uh, Well, if- uh, if there's no God, then where did everything come from? Boom! And you're like, they're like, yeah, but where did God come from? You're like, fuck! <laughs> Dude, I was literally thinking about the evolution thing this week and that argument because I I think I made that argument at times. I mean, I didn't know any non-Christians, so I didn't have anybody to make it to except for like my, you know, the other end of my Glenn Beck radio program. But yeah. uh, You had plenty of iron to sharpen your iron, though. Come on. Dude, that's exactly what I would call it. Yeah. But yeah. So, it, you know, if uh, if we all came from monkeys, then why are there still monkeys? And I don't know why I never just thought, well, chihuahuas all came from wolves and there's still wolves. Yep. <laughs> oh. And you know, it's <laughs> like, it shoots that whole thing in the foot. But And that is the whole argument when you're like, wait, how... If- how did all these animals fit in Noah's Ark? And they're like, well, wasn't that like two of every kind of dog got on? It was like wolves got on Noah's Ark and now we have everything else. And you're like, oh, that makes so much sense. In 6,000 years, <laughs> everything, is, everything has come that, that far full circle. Did you ask him, did the monkeys who got on the Ark, did they evolve into humans or did the humans evolve from the humans that were on the Ark? Has that ever been covered? Noah was the Piltdown man. i mean all right look i feel like you know obviously we're going off track immediately here uh noah strong enough with just his family to build a boat that could house like two of every animal 
yeah. for like a year and you're going to tell me he's genetically the same as us. Like they built a boat that's got to be what the size of like four Ikea's or something. And they built it. No, like, you don't it's, understand. It's, the, it's maybe the size of half an Ikea. <laughs> yeah, maybe at best. This and whatever the smallest Ikea is. And we're talking one of the floors too. Just it's, one floor. it's the size of kitchenware and meatball stand. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been a while since I've been up on my arc facts, uh, but I'm assuming people have measured out how many like forearms or cubits or whatever it take to make the arc. So the arc really wasn't that big. No, it no, wasn't. It really wouldn't have been not, not something you would have fit all the animals on. Oh man. That really shatters my worldview <laughs> right now. Yeah. Well, yeah, we gave you, I'm glad we gave you something to think about. <laughs> anyway let's let's uh let's get this back on the right track i'll do that the, i'll get this back I don't know. i'm like waiting for you to jump in and real, real quick did the arc have a steering wheel rudders did it have a rudder or was it just I mean, a floating shoe box i mean they had they were no i mean god was guiding it jesus oh, took the wheel on that one that makes sense yeah what was a large boat back then back with like it theoretically how big could boats be like there were that was the first one i think that was the first boat i think if noah could see like a modestly sized aircraft carrier he would probably be like i guess we didn't have to let the dinosaurs die out (laughs) (laughs) i know he noah got pretty fucking choosy and i was also taught that dinosaurs were on the ark so no one else was what really i feel like i was i feel like i was taught that they died in the flood i'm trying to remember my kent hoven dvds but uh that makes the bible false because every creature was supposed to be on it oh, so that's a good point yeah i must not be remembering that right yeah you I guys think somebody asked that question in youth group and they were like don't get bogged down in the details but do throw away your savage garden cd yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> all right okay. uh if there aren't any more distractions sam thank you. <laughs> so we figured uh because we're not, you know, professionals uh, of the law, also called lawyers. And I don't know. I'm sure we have some of the same takes that a lot of people have on what's going on with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But I, we wanted to take a little bit of time to go through some of the history of evangelicalism and how we got to a point in which, like, abortion became the hot topic the history of cool ball store way and look uh it begins at conception abortion begins at conception conception of abortion let's go there first (laughs) the conception abortion as a concept is something you can't abort because it's been conceived i really hope everyone listened to the please don't cancel us podcast before listening to this one (laughs) just going by the first five minutes (laughs) uh i also think it's really important to say that um look I wouldn't if I wouldn't necessarily like quote everything we say here. We're going we're going to like chunk our way through the history here and uh, we're not scholars. So I, I think in a, a good us. way, though, like because if if you guys are like me, I was genuinely shocked to learn about the history of evangelicalism and abortion because I just kind of always assumed for our entire lives. It's been one of the issues. So it's yeah. easy to assume that like, oh, 
this went like this has been the case for a thousand years or something. Not this has been the case for twelve years before I was born. Spoilers. Right. Like it, that's just I had no idea that was a thing until you know less than ten years ago. And so if you're like us and you genuinely thought that this was like the issue for a super long time, buckle up. This yeah. might be a little surprising and we're yeah. learning about it at the same time as you. It's a, the story of evangelicals and abortion is a little like Sons of Anarchy in that it starts out interesting and then it becomes long, tedious, tiresome, and there's no payoff at the end. Oh, so it's a good first like The season, Walking so. Dead. Is that you could compare <laughs> yeah. to The Walking oh, Dead? The, as walk, well. the Walking Dead, Dead. That was a better oh, example. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because at least Sons of Anarchy, they did wrap up storylines. My understanding with The Walking Dead is they've just outlasted all the actors. I mean, it's still now, going on. So wait, I thought it, I thought this is the last season. Is it? Maybe, but I don't know. I, I just know it hasn't fully wrapped up yet. It, it has lasted exactly the length of my marriage so far. And <laughs> darn it, I'm going to outlast The Walking Dead. We'll, we'll see. Mean, we'll that. see. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Where do we start this uh, mess? Uh, so we'll go ahead and go back to the early 1800s. And I've, I've actually probably mentioned this guy before anytime the apocalypticism of evangelicalism comes up. But uh, a Anglican minister by the name of John Nelson Darby uh, was born or was around in the early 1800s. But so his whole thing was like he had a bunch of problems with division in the church. Honestly, some of his takes before he went off the deep end are pretty relatable, right? For a lot of Christians where it's like, there's a total lack of division um, in his, he, in his political landscape, the church of England and the Roman Catholic church are always, you know, doing this push and pull for power. There's like the constant fight between who gets to make the rules and tell everybody what to do. Uh, and that gets old too, for Christians being caught in the middle of that. And he was just trying to figure out like, a way to be Christian that felt just more authentic than just this, you know, bickering and exclusivity. Reasonable. Something that probably a lot of us were on board with, are on board with, have been at some point. But uh, in 1827, he had a horse riding accident, uh, which kind of had him cooped up in his bedroom for a couple of months where it was just him alone in a room with his Bible. And that typically makes things go sour pretty quick when that happens. When you just sit in isolation and read that book by yourself, you'll walk away thinking something. In isolation with any like stupid things. medicinal aids or anything? Like, do they go into any detail there? <laughs> Ayahuasca, you know. Uh, he yeah. was just... You could, you could consider this guy to be like the Gary Busey of evangelicalism. Yeah, probably. I think more like the Joe Rogan. He's just like sitting in a, in a room with the Bible, just like licking toads or something. Yeah. <laughs> For a month coming up with epiphanies. So during that time, he comes up with his whole, this whole new interpretation. Uh, and you go from a, if I don't know if anyone remembers these words, but from a post to a premillennial view. Uh, the whole millennial view thing is like, the, at his time, the, the, under, the universal-ish, I'm not, I can't speak to that indefinitely, but at least for most Christians, the idea was that things were moving towards peace. The world was moving towards a place of peace. Uh, and after we got to this point of peace, there'd be a thousand year reign of Christ. Uh, and then the rapture would happen. Uh, so as far as everyone was concerned, we were on the path towards 
towards goodness and peace and whatever, a, a better world. Um, and he reads his Bible and, and finds some of the apocalyptic texts and thinks, no, no, this thing's all going to shit. There's going to be a, um, there's going to be a rapture. He kind of, he, he came up with the idea of the rapture. Which was definitely news to me. Was that yeah. news to either of you when you read it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was. It's, I, it's to weird to think I, it took that long for somebody to get it right, you know? Yeah, I know. Well, you know, God's time's not our time. So let's let him off the hook for that. I mean, uh, God's looking out from heaven going, oh, thank goodness. They, they got it right. Like, I was hating to have to string this out for another thousand years. Start the I, clock. I <laughs> guided the hands of prophets and medieval interpreters and stuff like that at 50 different stages to get a, to get the, the, the interpretation of the Bible that you're reading. But I finally have, like, communicated the end times doctrine correctly to someone. All I had to do was hide it in the the juice on the skin of this toad. <laughs> uh, so he, yeah. So he, he has this whole brand new idea. He's like, everything's actually going to shit. It's going to get awful. It's going to be a full blown apocalypse. And so he's hiding in his room, reading the Bible and getting depressed. And he thinks the whole world's going to end. Yeah. Mm. Yep. And right. so Check he starts, out. you know, spreading this message around Ireland and it kind of gains some popularity there uh, because of, just the conflict that was going on. Uh, so, but he ended up take. he tried to take this thing everywhere. Apparently he was like really, uh, he, he got his like work or belief, whatever he, his ideas published and work uh, spreading like the literature for it as well. I don't know how, I don't know. You can never knock the commitment of one guy to get their message out, even if it's wrong. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's so weird how stuff like that works. They're like, I'm, I'm they're so confident in it. Like everybody needs to know this. And, and there weren't that many messages to get out back then too. It was more like someone has a new idea yeah, in, exactly. our, in our little corner of the world. That's amazing. I bet no one has ever had this idea before, but now thanks to podcasts, we know that that's never been true. Yeah. Yeah. Now there's pl too many ideas, including these. Uh, so he, yeah, he tries to hold, get, you know, he spread his message around the world. He, he does end up taking it to the United States and it's not super well received here at the time. Uh, I believe it was around the time of the, the second great awakening uh, where Christians were in the U S were like getting re-engaged in the world. Uh, they were like feeling excited. Uh, they have this same idea that things are going to get better and that's going to usher in the thousand year reign of Christ. And it, it was a hopeful time uh, for Christians and it wasn't until the Civil War w that there was just a, a society was just incredibly demoralized. It was like, I mean, I don't. Was there anyone really that didn't lose somebody to the Civil War? I don't. I don't know the stats on the the deaths of the Civil War, but no, I mean it was pretty horrific. It everyone yeah. was affected one way or the other in the yeah. United States, obviously. Um, I thought it was interesting reading about how like almost every denomination split over slavery. Like every, I would have thought I think every single one did. Yeah. Which is just really interesting to think I, you would assume that there would be a little more consensus in one direction or another, but I think maybe just goes to demonstrate that that was as political as much as it related to anything in faith, because every denomination had a range of people in it that couldn't agree on a, I guess at the time you'd consider to be a political issue. 
Yeah. It's also worth mentioning that this history, as we're getting into like white evangelicalism's effect on abortion, this is about white evangelicalism. So during the Civil War, when all these churches split or there was plenty of black churches uh, that have obviously quite relevant views on political issues of their of the time. But um those have always been like white evangelicalism has always been different. Uh, so it's even getting into the civil war in the way that that demoralized white people to the point where they were like, Oh, maybe we should consider something else. Maybe things aren't so good. It's like for black people, they had been bad. So like, yeah, I'm not trying to be like poor white, white people. people it was a hard time, but like, <laughs> I, so let's just get that out of the way. I think we can give you a pass on that one. We'll assume you had good intentions. <laughs> Casey doesn't ever assume I have good intentions and he'll probably try to turn this into me being a racist somehow. So I Sam's just like, to... so the trouble all started <laughs> in the 1860s. Yeah. Everything was Get good. The part until... where you talk about murdering Clarence Thomas. <laughs> yes. We're getting there. But uh, no, dear FBI, that is just a joke. Growing up Christian does not endorse the killing of, any Supreme Court justices? Two thirds of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I want to let's get through this so we can uh, have some more conversation about it. So Darby dies in 1882, and his ideas were starting to take off kind of everywhere. Um, in the wake of his death, there is a guy named Philip Morrow who was what was they were now called radical evangelicals. These people who were like believed in this apocalyptic narrative were considered radical evangelicals at that time. Uh, and he begins to like kind of flip it and encourages Christians to disengage from the world, uh, despite what was happening in the Great Awakening, right? Where they're like re-engaging in social issues and feeling good. This guy, Philip Morrow, is like, back the fuck up. Everything's going to hell. Just disengage from the world, sit back and wait for the inevitable destruction of it, which actually makes more sense because I we talk I feel like we've had these conversations before every evangelical has who's shifted out of that apocalyptic belief set which is like all these people in politics are like well we need to do this or like we need to do this because it's the right thing to do or whatever they all have this idea that the world's going to fall apart and it's like if that's the inevitable end it seems weird to be this engaged in something you don't think you have any control over so I think this I, guy Philip Morrow makes is crazy, but makes actually more sense. I think it's just, I, we're seeing the same arc of this right now where like in times of, you know, in more hopeful times, people are more willing to invest and engage in the world as they find it around them. And like right now we're kind of like at the tail end of good times. I mean, really have been for like the last like five, eight years. Right. We're probably like headed into a recession and during more cynical times, I think it's more comforting to people to be like, look, uh, you know, of course things are bad. The Bible says that things are going to be bad. And, you know, that just means that we're closer to Jesus coming back. I mean, look around, look at the news. There's earthquakes and wars and blah, blah. I mean, who, who yeah. hasn't heard the talking points? Yeah, of course. It's for the last you know 25 years that I can remember them. And every day we get closer, I guess. <laughs> yeah based it's on a linear understanding every time. time yeah yeah uh so all right so now yeah philip morrow's on the scene now darby died 1882 uh 
quick note. One of the other things that Darby had predicted was that the Jews would re- return to Palestine. Uh, so then you have, you know, World War One come around uh, and that reinforces this ap- apocalyptic belief set. Right. How could it not? Like it truly seemed like the end of the world might be happening. So to, for more people to just jump straight into that apocalyptic narrative does make sense. Yeah, I think by all accounts, if you lived through either of the world wars, I feel like the only logical conclusion would be to look around and think that like, there's no way anybody's coming out of this. You know, I mean, the first world war was like slaughter on a scale that the world had just never seen before. Not in like Genghis Khan times, not any time ever did you see that number of people die in in such a cold, horrific, like mechanical way. And World War II just like dialed that up by like three. I don't remember what the the figure on it, but it's like three or four times the amount died in World War II. I think. Yeah, I, I don't know the numbers, but. I'll go ahead and say that sounds right, even though I would say that no matter what you said. <laughs> I can look that up real quick. I know how important that is to this. Um, oh my gosh, 70 to 85 million people died in it's World so War II. Fucking crazy. 3% of the world's population. Okay, I didn't realize it was that high. Let's just say the, what would you say the average person in the 40s weighed? Like 100, 140 pounds. Uh, average like man of soldier age, probably about 155 pounds. Okay, I'm going to do 140 because I'm conservative. <laughs> oh, I don't even know how to read this. It has an E in it. It's a lot of, it's a lot of pounds of corpse meat. <laughs> All right. Great. I don't know why you make a lot of sausage. I can tell what where you're going with that, and I don't know why I helped. <laughs> yeah, I don't know <laughs> why we're around waiting for it. But Casey okay, so, to calculate how much World, how World many... War One. Sorry, is estimated uh, 16 million to 40 million. Oh man, then the Russian Civil War right after it was five to nine million. Holy crap! Oh my god! Just Chinese... sitting around wondering why Russians are so uh, <laughs> Russian. <laughs> You just have to remember how many of them have died in large in large doses. Okay, but I've got some others to blow your mind with here. The Chinese Civil War, which was from 1927 to 1949, 8 to 12 million. And oh, then yeah. there's some other smaller wars. Then the Second Sino-Japanese War was 20 to 25 million from 1937 to 1945. They were the Republic of China and allies versus Japan. They were in two wars. That was a piece of World War II, apparently, but it but it started yeah. before World War II, and then well, they got Japan pulled into it. started by invading. They were kind of like trying to colonize, and they they wanted a little taste of the empire game by taking China under under control. So they started out invading China and doing some really rough stuff. Uh, you can go look up the Rape of Nanking if you want a little cult historic context for it it's not good and they did that throughout china but uh yeah japan it's amazing like that japan ever came out of that era 
and that they managed to like rebuild any semblance of a a society or an economy or something. A lot of Japanese people died. On that note, back to the history of evangelicalism and its road to abortion. Casey and I are really helping Sam get through this in a good amount of time. I I expected (laughs) a lot of derailment. Um, Let's see. Now we had Morrow. I don't remember what happened to Morrow. Oh, I believe Morrow. No, looks like I don't have all my facts straight. He died. Yeah, he died. Anyway, a new guy hits the scene. A guy named William B. Riley. Uh, he was a radical evangelical as well. Uh, and he kind of rebranded. He was, he. oh yeah, that's right. He's, he comes along and rebrands everything as fundamentalism. That's where that word started coming from. So that was eventually a term that people chose, like we're fundamentalists. Now it's just kind of a pejorative. I think fundamentalists don't even like calling themselves fundamentalists. They just call themselves real Christians. Uh, He's so- also the inventor of the personal cushion, the precursor to the my pillow. <laughs> I hope that's true. If you're making that up, I'm going to be mad at you. I mean, it could be true. Oh God, it's anybody not. can it's edit so a Wikipedia article. <laughs> It'll get changed back. We live in a society that values our Wikipedias. Um, I thought you were say values truth. Sorry. Keep yeah, going. no. <laughs> uh, anyway, this guy starts. Um, he, he, he's who, what tur- he's the guy that turns evangelicalism into a from it's just like passive apocalypticism that Morrow pushed it into into a anti-liberal movement. Uh, so he sees the changing of the times, right? Women's roles are changing. It's the civil rights era, urbanization, and the one one of the talking points we all heard growing up: the secularization of colleges. Colleges are just liberal, like liberal colleges are cesspools where you just they're godless, anti-Christian institutions. Uh, so he decides to start his own college, and. He also organizes like the first, it's like a, it's, he started this thing called the uh, World's Christian Fundamentalist Association. And he, he kicked it off with a bunch, inviting a bunch of leaders from other major, major Bible colleges to come and, you know, speak at, do your whole think tank thing. So there's all these colleges popping up. There's this guy kind of leading the movement and trying to actually turn it into yeah turn it into a movement, right? Everyone's doing their own thing and he's trying to organize everybody. Um, And at the same time, there's a woman named Amy McPherson who ended up starting the Foursquare Church in Los Angeles. I don't know if that name rang about rings a bell to anybody. I feel like I'm familiar with Foursquare Church. Uh, I didn't know her name, but she was very care. It was one of those very Pentecostal, like they speaking in tongues, charismatic, uh, very entertaining traveling preacher, very showy kind of think makes me think of like righteous gemstones kind of shit, the way it was described. And it seems like historically she never got her due cause she was a woman, which yes. is really a shame because we'd like to think that all of the good preacher grifters were men and they yeah, weren't it's not fair. One of they the first sex was a woman. <laughs> exactly. Like, and they just she's fucking not wrote her out of history. So they, they piggybacked off of her popularizing in, I, I want to say de-radical, uh, in the minds of people, like de-radicalizing the ev- evangelicalism, or that's not the right word. Um, but 
but changing the name, making it more mainstream. So it was no longer considered radical. It was just, it had taken over. It was now just evangelicalism. So she does that really helps push everything into like that type of kind of as a Catherine Crick too. Like these people have just been around doing their dumb shit. They just pop up and they get all like, they say things and people faint. Opportunities. Yeah. It's, uh, it's weird. It's still hard for me to figure out if these people have bought into their own stories or not, but if there's an audience for it with an appetite for something, someone is going to fill that void. Yeah. We probably shouldn't have picked an intro uh, to do this because we're at 27 minutes and <laughs> we're making great progress getting uh, to the meat we'll kind of get or we'll, we'll we'll clear this out soon um so yeah that gets popularized riley starts his bible college or gets everyone else all together and now that everything's more mainstream and riley's trying to create his political movement uh that happens around the same time as uh or during the same time as uh darwinism becoming more popular um he ends up which leads to the the whole scopes monkey trial uh which was you know after evangelicalism was popularized in a mainstream way they have a lot more public reaction in people to rally against uh teaching Darwinism in public schools. What I did not know is that, I mean, it was a, I mean, this event swept the nation. I knew that. I didn't know that Scopes lost. He lost. I, I don't know why I didn't know that. It ended up getting overruled on a technicality later. I don't know what that technicality I think is. The fine, I think the fine got overruled on a technicality, but I think he still had lost, right? Or did the whole thing get overturned? I thought the whole thing got overturned and that's why there is no, like, you can't teach evolution in public schools. Like originally that was the fight. Like we don't want them teaching our kids this because then it'll be like, uh, I thought it was since he lost. Yeah. I don't know. Because what happened was they, the, the, the evangelicals won that and they were, they're like, yeah, we won that. But their fervor and the way they presented themselves put such an awful taste in everybody's mouth for evangelicalism that it almost, it forced them out of the public guy for a while. They just retreated after that. Did anyone write any notes about how they accomplished that? How specifically, what did they do? I think, well, I think you have to clarify. I was curious. So I looked it up here. Okay. So that trial was decided in 1925 so these are separate eras that we're talking about here but they you know the cultural force of it came into play at the time that you're talking about you know the the moral majority era and stuff i think what it means is there was a lot of resistance to the idea of of evolution within that community and it reached a fever pitch you know in that post sixties cultural reactionary time, you know, that we're, that we're talking about. I think that one of the things that's really easy to glaze over too, is the fact that like, if the sixties and, and like late sixties, especially were such a wild time, like, yeah. you know, you, you had the the civil rights movement, which, you know, started out as, 
you know, peaceful demonstrations and stuff like that, you know, met with really violent resistance and things from, you know, Southerners and, and people like the Bull Connor and all that stuff slowly transitioned over to more extremist actions and stuff in the face of that resistance and in the, you know, the, the lack of change that they were looking to see. And what's crazy is to look up like, you know, the late sixties, how many bombings there were. It's, it's insane. And it's weird that we don't really talk about that or know about it. You know, I didn't know about it until recently here, but there were so many like political bombings and things like that in that time period. Like all that to say that like the world was kind of like spinning off of its axis socially and that the evangelical movement that you see come out of that like seventies into the eighties period is very much a reaction to one people who were onlookers during that period. And were just like, I, I think part of it is that cynicism that we were talking about, like the, you know, none of this makes sense and I don't see how it's going to get any better. So it's easier just for me to, to take comfort in the fact that Jesus is coming back and all of this is going to get wrecked and destroyed and everything's going to be made right. You know, like that, that fiery comfort, but it's also people who came out of that era, you know, who were participants in it that, I mean, think back on like the minute, the amount of times that, you know, somebody came through church and sort of gave their testimony, the big speech about how they were into drugs and they were into, you know, like we, like we've talked about before, it's always men. And they always talk about like how much sex they had and how many drugs they did and parties and rock and roll and blah, blah, blah. And they just like reached their limit on it and went the total opposite direction. I think like you have to remember that like this period of evangelicalism that led to like the moral majority and stuff like that, it was like the whiplash effect from that cultural shift and how crazy yeah. it was in the sixties. You know, it was really easy and comforting for people to, to say, we need to return to fundamental principles, a simpler time from before all of this. And that's, what's going to get us back on track and fix things. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So to correct myself and point out what you were saying, Casey is um, it's relation to the scope monkey trial, which was, so yeah, my bad on that. Um, I got my timelines crossed, but uh, the William B. Riley was, I guess the, the, the lawyer in the Scopes monkey trial was a three-time Democratic presidential nominee. Oh, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So Williams Jennings Bryant is that what it-, it was? Yep, yep. So he was. So yeah, basically that they ended up kind of between debate. I, I, I have an article pulled up here, but basically it says that William Jennings Bryan. Uh, it says Brian had originally been invited by Sue Hicks to become an associate of the prosecution. And Brian had readily accepted, despite the fact that he had not tried a case in 36 years. As Scopes pointed out to James Presley in the book Center of the Storm, on which the two collaborated. After Brian was accepted by the state as a special prosecutor in the case, there was never any hope of containing the controversy within the bounds of constitutionality. And they basically just ended up ripping this guy apart for the way that he like the way that the trial was how everyone's performance during it. Uh, there's a lot of mudslinging between 
between Jennings, uh, sorry, Brian and William Bell Riley. And they just kind of used the, he kind of used that guy's platform to have something to fight against. Uh, so William Jennings Bryan never won a game of checkers in his life. I bet. <laughs> Three-time a nominee, never a president. (laughs) He's a a real Ron Paul sort of character. (laughs) Uh, Sam, do we get up to the 60s? Because I think, to me, the 60s is is where this really starts getting interesting. This is it. So uh, this guy, William B. Riley, ends up, you know, after people get sick of him, I guess, he he ends up, that's how Billy Graham comes into play. Uh, Billy Graham ends up becoming the president of the college that Riley started uh, after Riley it takes some persuading. Uh, apparently Billy Graham didn't originally want to be a public figure. Uh, he performed the duties pretty well, but yeah. So Graham is the one who he begins to re-engage the war, like evangelicalism um, into culture, into the world, instead of just kind of like hanging out by the sidelines um, he, he pulls for the rapture back. to burn everything yeah, to death. He pulls yeah. them all back in. Now, of course, the 60s, right, is also around the same time as the civil rights movement. So that's when you start having to look at how that's really the meat of where evangelicals end up shifting towards abortion. Because up until this point, abortion, go ahead. Well, well, no, sorry. Finish your sentence. I think I was going to add on to that. Yeah. Up until this point, abortion had never really been a part of the evangelical zeitgeist. In fact, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution calling for the legalization of abortion, a a resolution they reaffirmed in 1974, the year after Roe v. Wade, and again in 1976. So- you want to, what Jeremiah? Sorry, sorry, sorry. I had some quotes. I kept mistiming when you're ending your sentence. Uh, <laughs> so I think it's interesting. Uh, so I don't know how many people listening to the podcast are would have been alive in the 60s or 70s, but almost definitely everyone's parents would have been right. So I think Joe Rogan has this bit where he says like that was only two people ago. Or that was only four people ago. I think he's talking about slavery when he says it. Like the reason we haven't got over some of this stuff yet, or we're still dealing with issues, is it just wasn't that long ago. Uh, and so in, in the case of this, like the desegregation of schools and the civil rights movement, and everything, it was like two people ago. It was your parents' generation. And in 1968, Christianity Today, the basically only Christian magazine that stood the test of time, organized a conference with the Christian Medical Society, discussed the morality of abortion. So that at least implies that like there was a variety of thought on abortion, even evangelicalism back then. Um, they had 26 heavyweight theologians from around the evangelical world who debated the matter over several days. I'm quoting from a Politico article here. Uh, and then they issued a statement acknowledging the ambiguities. They said, whether the performance of an induced abortion is sinful, we are not agreed, the statement read, but about the necessity of it and permissibility of it under certain circumstances, we are in accord. So even then, there are 26 heavyweight th- theologians from presumably covering a spectrum of different denominations in evangelicalism uh, did not all agree on whether or not it was sinful, but even the people who said it was sinful apparently agreed that it was necessary and permissible, which I think is fascinating in a morbid way. Like that, that is not how different denominations get along today. Like there's no way that's how that would go. No, that's, that's what's, 
I don't know. Oh, That's it, what's it, frustrating it, to me about this is like the idea that the only way if you're if you're anti-abortion, the only way to to act on that and to take a stand on it is through legislation. Like you have to ban it. That's the only way. I mean, that's basically what some of those guys are saying, right? Is that like, hey, I don't agree with this, but like this is on the conscience of the person getting the abortion or performing the abortion. Right. And they said that it, it, but it still needs to be permissible in certain circumstances. Everyone agreed. So that's at least saying abortion in some circumstances is okay. But Casey, it gets better. So two editors of Christianity Today in order, um, they took stands on abortion too. Carl F.H. Henry, the magazine's founder, said, quote, a woman's body is not the domain and property of others. Like Christianity today, I mean, was yeah. seems very progressive. It they, seems like they caught the wave of the 60s. <laughs> uh, they didn't maintain it. Then his successor, important. Harold Linsell, allowed that, quote, if there are compelling psychiatric reasons from a Christian point of view, mercy and prudence may favor a therapeutic abortion. The na- those are also, incidentally, the names of uh, two sisters who are homeschooled. <laughs> Mercy. <laughs> We're going to say therapeutic abortion. <laughs> but can you imagine any evangelical today saying, hey, if, if there's good psychiatric reasons, if their mental health isn't good, the merciful and wise thing to do would be a therapeutic abortion. Like, I... Even, I guess, some of the more left-leaning Democrats don't even phrase it that way. And I'm not trying to read too much into how this guy actually felt, you know, as opposed to just this one statement. Yeah. But, like, that's an incredibly progressive way to say that. Is... Sounds like a rhino to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a reminder of what Casey uh, – yeah. No, Sam said that Roe v. Wade was in 1973. So the Southern Baptist Convention, which like if you're looking for any guys to be behind the curve, it's the Southern Baptist Convention. They passed a resolution calling for the legalization of abortion uh, in 1971. And and then, like Sam said, they reaffirmed it a year after Roe v. Wade. And then in 1976, three years later, the Southern Baptist Convention, like if anything, if you weren't convinced by Christianity Today or whatever, you know, it's one magazine. The Southern Baptist Convention, which at this time was strongly opposed to desegregation, like in pretty much all of its forms. And they're still being like, well, yeah, but I mean, you got to like, got to have abortion. Like, don't be ridiculous. Yeah. And so, I mean, and how, so how did they get, the, how did they make the switch? And God as you hardened their hearts. De- yeah. Uh, you mentioned desegregation. So uh, in 1971, Green versus Connolly. Uh, that was the case over the desegregation of schools. And all of a sudden, public schools are now desegregated. And Christians do not like that. Because as we talked about um, during the Civil War, the number one, I mean, every denomination split over whether or not you should be able to own other humans as slaves. So, a lot of them didn't get past that. Now, there was a um, in Holmes County, Missouri, after after the desegregation of schools, within one year, they had zero white kids in their public schools. They, every white kid was pulled out of public school because the parents refused to let them go to school with black children. 
The black children, when they went to the schools, were just ridiculed. I'm four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds being heckled by these white adults. Talk to you like they're just spawn of Satan. It's truly despicable and disgusting to think about. Like if you if you had to watch a video of that played out, it would probably make it should. It would it would make most people feel sick. So their response to segregation was private schools. That's why you have so that's why you had so many private schools pop up, uh, cr- private Christian schools where they only got to where they were able to only admit uh, white students um, for and, religious reasons, which how yes. exactly did that work? Now, do you think that this is like this? OK, because at the time, right, how what percentage of American identifies as Christian or Catholic in some form or another. It's got to be the vast majority, right? I think it'd be easy to say at least like 60, 70%. Yeah. Would be some form of Christian officially. Do you you think that this is like, this is kind of like the evolution of people's view on, on homosexuality and things like that, where these people culturally are just, behind the curb and not moving in the direction of the current. Yeah. But, that's and they're using, and they're yeah. using like they're, they're posthumously using biblical references and stuff to like try to back up their, their antiquated views on these that's things. The, I think that's a piece of it. I think a piece of it is also, this seems to be starting to, like the start of the, we just don't like the government for non-specific reasons and anything the government tells us to do, we're going to be opposed to. So like the fact that it's about desegregation, I mean, yeah, that's pretty big. That plays into people's racism, but it could have been something else. Like we've seen it with a bunch of other issues over time. Few of them are as strong as like racism and abortion. But I think that's a piece of it is this is when that movement was starting to grow. The idea that you wouldn't trust the government and the government was like the enemy of the real Americans or real Christians. Um, Now, I don't know if this is 100% true. It might just be a perspective, but uh, both sets of my grandparents had mentioned before when asked about this that they felt like, um, oh, wow, I'm totally blanking on his name. The president who was impeached and then resigned, Nixon. Nixon. Yeah, I can't believe that wasn't popping in my head. <laughs> but they said Nixon was the first time them or anyone they knew had had the thought of like, wait, the government would just straight up lie to us, like the American government. The American government wouldn't do that. And like, of course, that's ridiculous. The American government had lied plenty of times in the past, but I think it was just such a public thing that they said really like took a big hit to people's morale as far as like well, maybe we just shouldn't trust the government. And I'm curious how much of it this grows out of something like that. If it's just like a, not only maybe I'm a little bit of a racist, but I don't want the government to tell me to do anything. So whatever the thing is, like I can throw a big fit about this and then I can do some mumbo jumbo about my religious freedom and see if I can get away with it. Well, it's like the, the um, public confidence in the government as this like authoritative body that's going to be steering society in a good direction is shaken. Right. Yeah. Whereas it might've had some authority before Nixon and all of that stuff and Vietnam and all of that to say it would have had more pull with people. If the government was the one pushing for, you know, a, a more progressive view of this stuff. 
but at this point, like it's kind of lost a lot of its credibility. And it's also, I mean, an economic crisis at the time and stuff. I mean, they had a full plate of shortcomings on the government side of things at this, at this point. Yeah. So, so yeah. Oh, go ahead, Jeremiah. Um, so I, I'm just mostly, I've got lots of quotes and things. So when the Roe v. Wade decision was handed down, W.A. Criswell, the pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, and apparently at one point he was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, he issued a statement saying, I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. And it has always, therefore, seemed to me that is what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed. Again, from the Southern Baptist Convention. And then Francis Schaeffer tried to get Billy Graham in on his anti-abortion crusade in the 70s. So apparently, like in the late 1970s, more people were getting abortions than evangelicals had expected, which I think makes a lot of sense. It's very hard, like in our perspective we have now, I think, to think about this. But why would you know how many times people got a certain medical procedure? Like, why would that be a thing that was on your radar if it never applied to you, you know? Right. And once it became a more national talking point and it was on people's radars, which again, is very hard to conceive of a time where abortion wasn't on people's radars, but like when our parents were kids, it wasn't. <laughs> um, but I think evangelicals got spooked by how many people were getting abortions. And there probably was for the people who had uh, moral qualms about it or just even questions that probably was a little bit frightening of like, wait, I thought this was something that like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Like there's lots of people getting abortions now versus it being some like fringe medical procedure. And I'm speculating a little bit, but I wonder if some of that started to help the, the panicking in the seventies. I don't think you, I think that that's probably a pretty accurate look at it. You know, it's, I, I, that's where I, I have trouble with some of the podcasts and stuff like that that I've listened to on this topic because they have a tendency to kind of like ascribe like really ugly motives to everybody involved. Like this was all like some big political plot on everyone's part to build this voter base so they could get their people into office and stuff. And and there was those I mean, there are those characters in this story, but like a couple of them and. Falwell makes the list. <laughs> right, right. But I, I think a lot of a lot of what we're talking about here is just people who had a visceral reaction to something that they didn't understand yeah. the scope of. Well, I, that, I think that's yeah, I think that's covered though in the way a lot of this is described is a lot of right. people had that reaction and then the people, the evangelical leaders trying to get political power, they figured out that, oh, that could be the issue. Like yes. people had a genuine reaction. Evangelicals had a genuine reaction. And then the leaders were the ones who jumped on it and went perfect. We right. got and it. They, Kids and they, at drag shows. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And they jumped on it. So like you said, they jumped Grimace. on it because there was a reaction to it. People, they saw that there was, it was happening more. Uh, people started to have a, maybe consider it and reflect on it more and, and question it. Um, and that, so that's when you have, basically Falwell and a guy named, I think it's Paul Weirich. We don't have to get into any real more history on that, but th- they were the ones kind of like the big head guys who were, were talking about it, who had political influence, who they were, and they were like, oh, that, that should be the issue. And that's kind of what the moral majority ended up being formed around. But it was in react. They needed that issue because it, they basically it, it's their, 
their desire to find an issue to rally people around came about because um, of Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was the first evangelical president. And uh, at that but point, was a Democrat. Yeah. At, and at that point, uh, there, Christians weren't divided by people. Christians hadn't picked a party yet. They were just, you know, sometimes Republican, sometimes Democrat. Um, and they were like, they just wanted an evangelical. They were like, yes, we need this. Uh, well, then you get Jimmy Carter, who's like, also, I believe in universal or socialized health care or whatever the term would have been for it at that time. He thought the tax code was basically welfare for the rich. Uh, and he starts talking about all this stuff that, you know, the conservative evangelical also did a terrible job. <laughs> <laughs> I think what that that was glazed over in the NPR one that I listened to. Oh, oh it so definitely like, was. He liked universal health care. It's like, yeah, but he also presided over like a really terrible economic period. I, yeah. I don't I think they glazed over that part. Uh, but they also I think most what they were covering was right when he got elected in the first place, which is where everyone should have been super excited. Yeah. Uh, we got like a literal evangelical Sunday school teacher. I agree. They kind of skip past the like. And then did he do a good job? Maybe yeah. not. History seems to be a little kinder to him, I guess, or but probably just kind to him as a person because he seems like he's an actual, maybe our last decent human being who became president. <laughs> uh, he does seem like a good dude. Yeah. And then they, but it was the, we have to get Jimmy Carter out of office. And I really doubt it was because of his failed policies. Like, I think this was them just capitalizing on it's time for this growing evangelical right to really take over like i i don't think it was really because they were morally outraged over jimmy carter himself only sort of all well in the leadership no i think yeah. was, i think there was some sort of moral outrage because also you have a guy like that like it and that's when because they what they switched to but now they're like let's rally the people and let's let's stand behind reagan uh yeah because and, racism wasn't working which is I guess comforting that they just couldn't get people to rally around racism. Like your average voter maybe wasn't repulsed enough that that was the angle you were going for. They'd vote against you, but at least they were apathetic of like, I don't know, man, that's, I mean, they already, the civil, they passed the Brown, the board of education. I don't know. Like my kids, you know, they go to a, they go to a public school. I don't know. There's black kids and white kids, whatever, man. Like it seemed they just couldn't get anyone to care about that as like a real mobilizing thing. The leaders really cared about it a lot though. They, well, <laughs> I bet like some it. of the parents, I'm sure. But no, I think, I think some of the, I think a lot of the parents did care about it, but their kids are already in all white Christian schools. So it didn't matter. It wasn't until someone wanted to shake that up uh, that they, that's, yeah, that's like, that's, that's not that's, enough parents though. How many, all white Christian schools, private schools were there. Like, right. Well, you don't I, shape it that way. You don't shake it. You don't shape it around. Uh, you shape it around the same thing that the civil, that, that the South did. Oh, states rights. Oh, religious rights is what they well, do. No, this is religious right. rights. But so I'm they, saying, I think this, this applied to fewer people. Like it was something that you weren't going to get that many people upset about it. Cause not that many people cared about your private schools, like a small, very energized block did, but you need something that crosses over the, where do my kids go to school and becomes a more universal thing. That's what I'm you know, saying. I, I don't think that, we're that's the shift. I'm, but yeah, yeah, I think yeah. Some of the voting, some of the people were, would have been, you might've not been to use racism as your platform, but you could use religious liberty. Is what I was trying to say. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So, that like, sense. that's why you have all those people in your camp because if the second you start dealing with, you know, someone saying you can't function as a, you know, a nonprofit or get any sort of government funding if you're going to only admit white students, it's like, well, now we also would like to be able to uh, 
shape the political landscape uh, under the guise of religious liberty so we can continue to do what we want. So there are, there are large, we still have them. They're still hanging around for religious liberty. Uh, and I was trying to compare that to, it's not about slavery. It's about states' rights. It's not oh, about racism. It's about religious liberty, you know? I, so I probably, I think I failed to do that in my original point, but <laughs> so all around, uh, I feel like, there's a lot. So a lot of what we're talking about, you have some articles uh, that you've been looking at, Jeremiah, but it was a it was a NPR through line podcast um, called they've released it twice. Uh, Apocalypse Now was the first one, June 13th, 2019. And then they just re-released it uh, uh, within the last couple of weeks. But uh, even if they paint over, kind of like skirt over a couple things, it is about an hour uh, to wrap up the history of evangelicalism and their shift towards abortion as a platform. But basically, it was just like that was that became the way to. It just became the most obvious way to mobilize people and and capture a voting block. And it everything kind of coincided with since you know since. John Nelson Darby in creating these shifts and allowing uh, in different things that happened throughout the world, like the Civil War, uh, World War One, like it changed the landscapes that just paved the way for a couple of people to change evangelicalism into the voting block that it is today. And that in that uh, getting people to rally around abortion had was ended up being the the real the start of it but i think i think what we're trying to say too is that it's a little it's it's a little disingenuous to say like oh it, this is entirely because of um like th- i'm trying to think of entirely how, because of racism or entirely because of tax avoidance or entirely yeah. because of actual yeah. you believe abortion's morally wrong which you'll notice does not pop up a whole lot in this story right there's a lot of things at play that led to a culture in which they could be captured by this uh, yeah it wasn't and these these 200 were geniuses it worked so well it did like it's it's astounding how right they got it on uh, being accurate on what would work, just to be clear. But like, how many right. times have you had conversations with somebody where you can get them to agree on so many things from like the Democratic platform? Like, usually my opening argument is not like, yes, everyone hates the Democratic Party, including Democrats. Like, great, we've skipped past that. But let's talk about some actual party platform things for fixing problems in the world. Like, there's only one political party right now in the United States that actually has any plans whatsoever. So we can start there. Like, whether the plans are bad or good, and I can get people to agree with so many things, and at the end, it doesn't matter because of guns or abortion. Like, that's it. And you can get people to go, yeah, man. I could really see myself going for like, I, you know, someone has some bad medical things happen to them. Then they understand that like, Oh, uh, maybe insurance should not be tied to your employment. And this can actually completely ruin the rest of your life. Even if you've done everything right. And you're like, man, yeah, I can see why everybody needs this, but you know, I can't support abortion, which to me is such nonsense. Cause it's not like the Republicans have been doing anything about abortion productively. Like even now, this isn't really about abortion. They got, they wanted a, a conservative sp- Supreme court. Like abortion is a thing that they will do. They're going to give people some meat, but now that they can just campaign off of like, keep abortion illegal. It's been the one thing that you can get people to agree with anything else you want to do because you're the party that theoretically is fighting abortion for five decades. 
I think it's what's what's interesting to me is like where the crossover is. And I guess it's on an individual level, but you know, there are people and we all knew them in church and maybe still know a bunch of them that are like diehard pro-life advocates. You know, the people that'll go hold, hold a sign in front of a Planned Parenthood or hand out brochures trying to talk women out of going inside and like looking at their options, you know, those people exist. And those people vote based on abortion and abortion by itself, right? There's a ton of people, though, that I think abortion offers like this really convenient excuse to never deviate from the the group of people who ascribe to their viewpoint the closest, you know, and as frustrated as they get with them and stuff like that. I mean, all of us look at whoever, I mean, take the next election, whoever runs, we're all going to look at both candidates and be like, God, really? (laughs) This is who we've got. Yeah. You know, and abortion represents like this. It's, it's like the, the Trump card for every political argument. It means you you don't don't have have to to reconsider any of your views. You don't have to challenge your worldview at all. You don't have to expand anything you believe. Like you get to stay with your head firmly in the sand because like exactly what you said, you have the Trump card of, yeah, but like all of that stuff is the party that supports abortion. So it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It completely annihilates it as a thing that you have to consider within your worldview. And you don't have to feel challenged because you are morally right because you hate abortion. Or, I mean, sometimes it's a, you can't, you can't like as frustrated as you are with the party about this or that or the other, like you're morally obligated to look at it in terms of which candidate supports life. You know, like those dynamics are a little bit different for a lot of different groups all across the country. Some of them, it's an obligation. Some of it's a convenient excuse. Some of them are diehard believers and they vote based on that. But I think what you have to give, like, cause I, I was in the camp, like you were just saying, I was in the camp for the last, I don't know, 10 years of why are you guys still talking about abortion? Like, can't you see that they're just playing you? They're never going to do anything about it. It's never going to change. Like, this is just something that they rehash every election to make sure that your vote is locked in. Like, it's a joke. Why are we talking about it? But here we are. And I was wrong. I mean, and I don't think that, like, this is the... It's hard because there's so many different parties and people involved and stuff but like most of the of the people on the right i don't think that this is the result of a concentrated deliberate effort to get abortion overturned but they've been the the diehards have been good enough at marketing it as like a litmus test for candidates that they've pushed their way to this point you know it's it's been a litmus test for everyone that they've looked at, whether it's local judges, local dude, I, the last election, you know, we were looking at, we got mail in ballots so that we could go through the list and see who was even running for some of these positions. And, uh, you know, spoiler alert, most of them in Kansas, most of the positions only have one person running in there. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, when you get like the County clerk, who states that they're pro-life on the website. Like, well, what are we doing? 
What what difference right. does it make? Why does that matter for your position? But it's the litmus test. It's a way of showing the people reading it that like, hey, I'm one of you, you know? And it's worked so well up to this point that, you know, it was a litmus test for Supreme Court judges that they put in place. You know, none of them actually copped to the idea that they would overturn Roe v. Wade, but they at least made it known that they disagreed with it or that they had questions about it or, you know, whatever. They, they lawyered know. their way through that really good. You, obviously, by the spirit of the law, they definitely lied. By the letter of the law, eh, nah, they're safe. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think just to clarify, I think I might have uh, skipped over saying this. So I do want to clarify to make that connection between uh, Green versus Connolly is that at the end of that, uh, the, the black, the parents of black students in Holmes County wanted the IRS to rescind the school's tax exempt status because the schools were discriminating based on race and they won. So that's what set that precedent for like schools uh, eventually set the precedent for schools not being able to maintain tax exempt status. Like, so you have your Jerry Falls and all your Christian people, all your Christian schools that got started. So that's what, sh that's what helped shift them into like, okay, we it's, not enough to run on racism, but we already have those people because they already right. want their kids to go to white schools. And we can do that under the guise of religious liberty. We need something else. And that's when they tipped into abortion. So it like race definitely played a big part in it. Uh, but I think there is that quick connection that people like to make now uh, as a talking point of like, it's all because of race, And it's not, not because of racism. I think, I think people try to make the connection too quickly to make it to assume that because of racism all that's that's everyone falls into the through. fallacy of doing a black and white judgment on yes well it's obviously because There's everyone involved in this thing is a monster and yep. it's possible that someone like listening to this podcast could be genuinely confused or hurt by like i didn't hear any of this growing up and i legitimately thought abortion was evil and maybe some of yes. us fall into that category yeah, right most and of like, us most right. of us it, fell into that category. Right. And 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 that is totally valid. Like your feelings are not invalid. I think the takeaway from it should be the environment you grow up in, especially if it's perpetuated for a couple of decades, you absorb so much of that information that like it's just in your pores. And yes, yes you do genuinely feel that way. That doesn't mean that your parents or your grandparents weren't manipulated into that position. Like, and that's okay. You just, it's important that you understand where it came from. It doesn't even mean if you're listening to this podcast and you have questions or you think abortion is morally wrong, it doesn't mean you're supposed to listen to all of this and just throw that out. Like if you feel the way that you feel, I don't think we're going to change your mind. If all of social media and everything right now hasn't convinced you, like we're probably not going to accomplish it. Three idiots talking on this podcast, but you should at least understand that you're being played for purely political gain. Yes. And I think you're making a good point in that, like your people might not, this isn't, I think some people fall into the belief that if you show somebody this, then they'll change their mind about abortion. There's still, there's still a conversation around that. That's never going away. And the point is to show since the early 1800s, but our historical landscape, the ideologies of evangelical leaders, the people who just want power within those categories who are willing to manipulate people's good in good faith, trying to be good Christians. Like there's so, the point is that over that there's 200 years worth of bullshit at play. And, a lot of it was calculated 
and a lot of it has been manipulative. And that should at least give you pause to reconsider why you think what you think and how we got here and where we're going. Like, I think where we're going, and I don't know that we should keep this going much longer, but we're just, like, I think what's frustrating about where we're at right now is you go, what's the next step? Like, they did this. They've been talking about this forever. Like, are we, what are we going to see? Are we going to see abortion rates decline? Are they going to do, like, we've, we've known for years what helps abortion rates go down. And I've held their breath waiting for the Roe Ro v. Wade to be overturned. So I'm not exactly exuberant or over the idea that like, oh, now the work begins, like, fuck them. Like, that's what they, oh, now the work, like the work could have began 50 years ago. It could have began at any point, but you're just waiting for this. And now you just get to sit and vote and be like, well, we accomplished something great in the name of the Lord. And and it's not actually going to change. You just get to put your fucking blinders back. Yeah, the on. work isn't going to begin because but the state a- doesn't sanction it. Yeah, <laughs> that's all. the important part. That's what matters. And that's how we know we're one nation under God. I think when, when what I think of when I, I honestly like. I am not interested in talking to somebody about whether or not abortion is wrong that thinks that it's wrong. Like, that's fine. Look, I don't agree, but like, it's fine that if you are a person listening to this and you think that abortion is wrong or that it's reprehensible or whatever, like not interested in trying to change somebody's mind on that because we're, we're pretty stuck where we, where we're at most of us. Right. But I think the thing that you can ask yourself is like, is this the best way to advocate for what I want and what I think is right? Like is, is passing legislation, which now it just, I mean, we're going to the state level, right? There's a bunch of states that already have laws in place where it's going to make abortion like pretty much illegal or close to it. Yeah, there's a ton of like trigger laws set to go off the second this happened. Well, and and like now, I think, you know, now that it's at the state level, I think what's most important is just looking at it and being like, is is this the way that I advocate for, quote unquote, life? You know, like, is this the best way? And I think that's what you're saying, Sam, is like, it's not because whether or not this is legal on the books, I mean, we already have like all of these different laws at the state levels restricting abortion. I mean, it's very tough to get one in a lot of parts of the countries. They still happen. I mean, you can outlaw the back of a doctor's office in a, it's like in a, they happen illegally, frequently, when they're not accessible. Yeah, and this is not taking a stand. Like that's that's the joke. That's the like the the thing that's been sold to evangelicals, and it's the same as like you know, hey, uh, evangelism and outreach and stuff like that. Like you know, you could go out into your community and talk to people and get to know your neighbors and try to make a difference that way. Or you could put some money in the plate to send to Papua New Guinea, you know, so a guy can cut an airstrip in the middle of the rainforest. Like that's also ministry and that's a lot less tedious and time consuming. And, you know, you can just put your money in. Actual sacrifice. That's the thing. And that's why abortion, like overturning Roe v. Wade, I think that's why this is like such a popular talking point because to get involved in people's lives is messy. 
and it exposes you to the reality that like there's a lot more to this than just like well i guess i don't want to ha- be a mother so but you know like there's a lot of reasons to do this and once you see those reasons at at you know firsthand your viewpoint on this is probably not going to be so concrete and i've been it, really touched by the amount of people i know on social media that like are generally considered to be fairly conservative and they've come out in the past week and been like well i was hoping i was never gonna have to post about this online but since everybody seems to think this is these are the only people who get abortions raising my hand you know me i've got kids i love kids and what you don't know is four years ago here's the situation that happened and they go through and it's always like a sad terrible story and you know the old I don't know if it's a joke or a stereotype is the only moral abortion is my abortion. You know, that whole idea of like, well, everyone else is getting them because they're selfish, selfish welfare Queens who like, or just don't want to take care of a baby and want to live off the government and blah, blah, blah. Like whatever story you want to make up about the reasons why someone is not as morally just. Ironically, you. they'll also use that same argument to talk about why people have so many kids. Cause they get free money from the government for each kid. So that <laughs> well, argument, not, we're, not, we're not getting into that, but, but that's what pisses me off though. The same people will make both arguments depending but, on what conversation they're in. But everybody is capable of getting to the point where they're like, okay, I understand why that's the thing, but you don't understand this situation because the reality is everyone's situations are unique. Have there been some truly selfish people who were just lazy and didn't want to take care of a kid? Yep. Like almost definitely that's been true probably thousands of times, but that doesn't delegitimize all the millions of times where it's been a much more complicated and nuanced situation where regardless of your feelings on whether or not someone should get an abortion, most people, if they were faced with that situation themselves would at least have some pause. It wouldn't be that black and white if it was you in that case, because it hasn't, no one, and I'm sure there's plenty of other people I don't know or I know who haven't spoken up because they don't feel comfortable and that's fine. But the ones that have spoken up, all of them have said it was an incredibly difficult decision and I doubted myself and I didn't know what to do. And like no one was like, well, this is black and white, cutting it out. Like no one I know said that. Sorry, Casey. <laughs> Casey thought of a great joke that he's debating whether or not he can say it. <laughs> <laughs> i know that look like you know like hey you should take the biblical approach if if you don't want a baby you should put it in a basket and throw it in the river (laughs) i thought you were to make a joke about you should take the biblical approach and get an abortion like the bible describes (laughs) just send it down the river and maybe it'll end up royalty you know you should take the biblical approach and when you (laughs) No, you don't understand. Okay, she's scared for the baby's future. Okay, that is a totally different situation. Yeah, the only you don't moral understand. baby abandonment is my moral baby. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> oh my god! Like, yes, I mean, it's you can easily nitpick. Is the Bible even morally consistent on the thing that someone thinks is consistent on? It's Spoilers, not, not in this case. Yeah, sorry, but not, not anything to your human understanding. Oh, oh, damn! You got me. <laughs> With that, the other card. Yeah, it's like, I think you got it. <laughs> it's your trap card you just pulled out of your sleeve right there. Okay, before we break here, oh my because, god, uh, I feel like the entire internet, everyone, all of us, kind of like in a state of despair right now. And it, it, what's next? Like, what's the next step? Aside from posting on social media, or uh oh oh what's the next thing about it on a podcast like what's yeah. the next practical step 
if you don't like this decision and you're worried about it at the state level? Like, what do you do? I think it makes sense to look up what the laws actually are at your state level, find out like what are the odds that this is something I'm going to have to think about in the next election or two in my state, which some states like California, eh, probably not something you're going to have to worry about a ton. States like Tennessee, Kentucky, Virginia, like not the deep South, but also a little yeehaw. Like you probably want to get yourself educated on what are your resources? How far are you away from stuff? Uh, what are the likelihood that you need to mobilize for voting specifically this time? Not saying you shouldn't always mobilize to vote, but like you need to know what is directly coming up for you so you can do something about it. Um, and then, man, I feel like this one's hard. There's if also, you, oh, sorry, God. I'll say if you know anybody with a story to, sh- to share, we know that the thing that changes most people's minds when they actually, like when they get an abortion is because it happens to them. The people who are formally opposed to it, like because, you know, newsflash, I think everyone knows Republicans get abortions, Christians get abortions, evangelicals get abortions. Maybe and even at higher rates because of the shame of un, like a pregnancy. I, I, I don't know if we have a way of, of proof of demonstrating that, but. But, I, I bet I can it. but it's not zero. It's definitely not zero or anywhere close to it. Like, I'd be very interested in knowing those numbers if anyone has ever studied it. I imagine that would be really hard to get people to report on that. I only but, made that correlation because I was just for what, uh, one of my classes. I just had to write a ethical like dealing with the ethics of being a, a school counselor and having a student come to you and say that she's pregnant and wants to have an abortion. And how do you handle that? And one of the articles that I was reading was talking about how like people who are in situations where they're not going to where they feel what where they're in an environment where there's people aren't going to they know what the reaction is going to be to them being pregnant and they're afraid of that reaction or it's just they're more likely to go uh, to quietly go and get an abortion yeah, I, I looked up some information while you were talking. So don't, this is from the Guttmacher Institute. I don't know if I'm That's pronouncing legit. that correctly. That's where some of the okay. information came from. It's yeah. an article from 2020 and it says, so out of uh, the most recent Institute data from 2014, 17% of abortion patients identified as mainline Protestant, 13% as evangelical Protestant, 24% as Catholic. Yeah. That, 38% no affiliation, 8% pulled. some other affiliation. Yeah. Like, Okay, so I take back part of what I said. Uh, a lot of, a lot of, I know people could easily push back and go, "Well, that's just they're culturally Christian; they're not actually believers." And there's no way we're gonna solve yeah. that in this podcast. But you like, can say that about anyone who disagrees with you on Christianity, right? How to live? Anyway, the, the point I was gonna make was that like people change their minds when it happens to someone to them or to someone close to them, because then they're able to understand that this is a complex life that we're talking about here at the babies, of course, not the mother. Uh, but, but no, the, the, <laughs> the parents involved, it's a complex situation and then they're able to understand it. And like we talked about in the previous episode, you're not necessarily trying to completely change someone's minds. You're trying to pull them one step of like it. Don't try to change someone's mind who thinks abortion is murder. You're not going to change their mind in a conversation. You may not change their mind in a lifetime. Apparently all of our minds were changed at some point, but like we're, <laughs> we're probably in the minority. Um, you're just trying to get them to accept that they think it's wrong, but there might be legitimate situations where it may not be wrong for everybody. And because of that, what do we need to allow for? Like, that's what you're trying to accomplish because I, the morality of the topic is so divisive and it's always going to be so divisive. Everybody on every facet of every side, because it's not even really two sides uh, is going to believe that they're right 
they're morally right and they're going to despise a lot of the beliefs of the other person and if you want to participate in a productive conversation you just have to accept that that part of the conversation probably isn't getting any traction i would tell you like if you're looking for a really good example of a personal story you know a story that personalizes what this decision is like for people um a lot of you are probably familiar with the youtuber god is gray um she does some really good videos and i think maybe like last summer she put out a video like telling the story of how she ended up getting an abortion and the circumstances that led up to it and it's it's good i mean it's 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 good in the way that it like illustrates just the the torment of the situation and how tough a decision that is for people it really dispels this idea that like this is something that that people do flippantly for you know um for whatever reason i mean she paints a really clear picture of the situation that she was in which was tragic and how she ended up pregnant all that stuff i would highly recommend it i i think uh you know, when I watched it, I was like driving to a meeting and I had to like stop and cry that? a little bit. <laughs> it was it's like it's a pretty it's a pretty heavy video, but I think it does a really good job of illustrating exactly that point. And she does that in a way that's I think it's it's disarming for people who are, you know, staunchly opposed or or somewhere close to that. Um, on the like individual front too, I'll give you a, a perfect example of what Jeremiah was talking about. Like, what is this, what do local regulations look like and how can you, uh, do something about it? So I live in Kansas. Kansas has got a vote coming up on August 2nd over, um, the state constitution. Basically it's got a clause in it. The way it, my understanding is that it's got a clause in it that talks about bodily autonomy. The Supreme Court of Kansas at one point ruled that that included the right to an abortion. I think we've got some restrictions in place that really like, you know, counteract how that's interpreted and stuff. But there is a huge push right now to change and reinterpret the state constitution so that they can push forward these like anti-abortion rulings and, and legislation and stuff like that. And I'll tell you, this is, this is kind of like the frustration that, that I have, and I'm a part of it, you know, I'm not above it, but you know, how many people, how many of us have posted online or on Facebook or on discord or whatever else about like our frustration with this whole situation and, and how upset we are about Roe versus Wade being overturned and all that stuff. I've seen, I, I can't tell you how many hundreds of bumper stickers and signs and billboards and just every form of advertising I've seen that says, vote yes on August 2nd. It's got a silhouette of a mother holding a baby and it says, protect them both, both vote yes on August 2nd. And that's the, you know, reinterpretation of the state constitution. I think I've seen three separate items advertising the idea that you should vote no. And I don't know why that is. I mean, I know why it is because the social pressure of, of coming out is like 
pro-choice here publicly. Like it has ramifications. I mean, culturally here, that's not a popular thing, but I'm just like looking around at the things that I see around me and thinking like, there's no way this doesn't pass. I mean, there's the, the amount of support that it has here. And I don't know what the polling data looks like among Kansans. I imagine like there could be a majority of them that are anti-abortion, but like the, the stark contrast in the amount of vote yes stickers and billboards that I've seen to the amount of vote no ones I've seen is, is really troubling. And, uh, you know, I guarantee you that those types of situations and legislation are playing out all across the country. Figure out what you can do at the local level. You know, um, we're going to have to you're going to have to if you feel strongly about this, you're going to have to do something at the state level now if you want to protect that. There's no more leaning on this Supreme Court decision. Yeah. Well, what do you guys think on that note? We wrap up this brief intro. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about our guest, Sam. So our guest is author uh, Brian McLaren. Also, I would say, uh, I'd say activist as well. Um, But he is a, I feel like he's one of the bigger names in progressive Christianity and in the way that it it shifted. Um, You know, he was one of those people who did start out an evangelical uh, and he's written a lot of books. Uh, You can check out his bibliography online, but. Uh, some of the ones that were impactful to me uh, that I had read during the time where I was starting to change my mind about a lot of things and I needed new voices um, was uh, he, a new kind of Christianity. Uh, we make the road by walking the great spiritual migration. That one was particularly impactful to me uh, in the way that it. Well, so the subtitle is how the world's largest religion is seeking a better way to be Christian. Um and then the book that we talked to him about today is, I think, particularly helpful, will be particularly helpful for a lot of people who are trying to figure out which way to go. And I think it'll be troubling for a lot of conservative or conservative Christians who might have already had a problem with him. But uh, his book is called Do I Stay Christian? A Guide for the Doubters, the Disappointed, and the Disillusioned. And I think what's uh, new and notable about this book is he's really truly writing it from a perspective of is this right for you because you don't have to so do you want to be christian here's why i think you could stay christian and what i think that means and how you can live and act in a world where you've decided to and if you choose not to there's a lot of good reasons not to be uh and here's a bunch of them and in light of that what does that mean and how can we all work together to make to make the world that we all want to live in or if you stay christian the world that you believe that uh that christ was trying to build as well so i love this i uh, he's been someone who's been really influential in my life so getting to uh read his his new book and, and talk to him about it and ask some questions and it was a lot it was great it was a lot of fun i hope you all enjoy it i hope you all stick through this introduction and get to the interview <laughs> uh so without further ado here is our conversation with brian mclaren everybody we are back with our guest brian mclaren brian thanks so much for joining us glad to be with you guys so just to set up a little bit of quick context brian um casey is uh casey found his way out of christianity and i found 
a new way to make it work for me. So in light of the conversation we're going to be having about your new book, Do I Stay Christian? I'm not going to consider this interview a success unless Casey and I flip sides. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right. Well, listen, the fact that you two guys are friends and have answered differently to me is a good sign in the world. So that's good. <laughs> um, just so our listeners, for anyone who doesn't know you, uh, I think it'd be uh, just a break the ice a bit and get some people introduced to you. I, I'm going to, I found a couple of really good um, one-star reviews of some of your work on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> this should be good. So I just want to, I don't know, set you up right. Um, and maybe okay, give you good. a chance to defend yourself or not. Um, so this one says that um, these are for your book, The Great Spiritual Migration, which I pulled that one up because that was the last one that I had read. Uh, so I could at least be familiar with some of the reviews I'm reading. And I got to say, they are right, Brian. I'm worried about uh, it. <laughs> so this one says, McLaren's gospel is one of a new age-filled, humanistic, flower power message. God is Santa? Jesus' sacrifice was far beyond of what McLaren makes of God's offer of grace. Accepting every sinner in their sin in the name of love? <laughs> That's not what the Bible teaches. We as struggling sinners with our hope in Christ have future, not the ones who persist in sin. The life of Christ is more of a struggle than McLaren's love boat episode. It's pretty indicting. <laughs> oh but. my goodness sakes. All I can say that would be worse than being praised than being condemned with that kind of logic would be to be praised with that kind of logic. <laughs> <laughs> I like the part where he condemns these people. <laughs> <laughs> and I got one more short one for you because I think it really gets to the heart of how some people uh, McLaren who are you to reinvent Christianity? Redefining sound biblical principles and rules for conduct and living is just another egghead vying for book sales and popularity in this anything goes era. You will answer to God for falsely speaking. So there's <laughs> eternal threats of damnation there. They they managed to get their way into an awful lot of these one-star reviews. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's funny because um, uh, the idea of that being the popular thing to do. I mean, I'm sure it's picked up steam a little bit. You're probably going to be less hung out to dry than maybe you would have when you started writing, but there's plenty of people who sacrificed their pastoral careers when they decided to write about what they actually believed. And for people to still call that, uh, just trying to sell books. I don't think that oh necessarily gosh. worked out that way at the beginning no, for a lot of it, people. It certainly didn't for me. Uh, nobody buys books like conservative evangelicals. <laughs> so when you, when, when you leave that group, uh, you leave a big, uh, big group of readers. So. Yeah. Especially if you do it in a way that, you know, churches of a thousand plus members will buy one for everyone so they can do a group yeah. study on it. That's a great way to yeah. <laughs> sell them in bulk. Uh, so I was able to read through a lot of a lot of Do I Stay Christian? Um, I was a late sign up, so I had to really get through it pretty quick. But I I I absolutely loved it. I thought it was a really I, the way it, unique. I don't the setup, the structure. I think it's very uh, important and necessary uh, for what people are working through. Uh, but one of the things I really liked uh, is in your your introduction to the book. You, you set up how it works and it functions and, and you say in it, uh, I won't try to push anyone foregone conclusions. This is a serious subject and a personal one. And as thoughtful and morally responsible people, you are the only one who can decide whether you will stay Christian or not. And only you can decide how you will live your wild and precious life after you choose to stay or leave. 
And I think the way you set it up with the assumption that your readers are intelligent and morally responsible uh, before you get into the subject matters was refreshing because it, it kind of immediately brought me back to a lot of what I've experienced in my life, not just in evangelical Christianity, but there is a tendency to assume um, you have to tell people what to believe. Uh, and yeah. that, that infects everyone everywhere. Um, yeah. And since leaving, I've found it on the, the left as well. And that the assumption that people don't know what to think without you speaking into their lives. And I think that's probably why maybe some people might might not love the direction of this book. But I think, I mean, you were a pastor for what? How long? How long were you a pastor for? 24 years. Yeah. So I'm sure you've, in your life, gone through that feeling of, it's my job to tell everybody what to think versus my job to do something different. So maybe just to kick us off, speak to your transition out out of that and into what you're doing now. Well, you know, I should say, even in my years as a pastor, I, I was a college English teacher before I was a pastor. And when you teach literature, you're you're not trying to tell people what a work of literature means. You're trying to help them learn to work with that meaning themselves, right? You're not trying to tell them what to think. You're trying to help them learn how to think. And I think that stayed with me through my years as a pastor. Um, I, I, there are a few moments I look back at my life when I realize, man, I pushed too hard or I, I did have the foregone conclusion, but I'm, I'm grateful that a lot of my life, I, I sort of, I just didn't like when other people did that to me and I didn't want to do that to them. And that really was a, a major uh, dimension of writing this book, um, Sam, because I've, I, I mean, I know anybody who's familiar with the religious world would expect what this book really is is why you should stay Christian or you're going to hell <laughs> or <laughs> why you should stay Christian or just admit you're an illogical, biased, uh, spineless, moral slob, you know? Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I don't feel that way. And I, 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 and, and I expect that a good number of readers would be s- suspicious that that's how I would, uh, proceed in the book. But I, I suppose I also have this other, I don't know if agendas are the right word, I guess it is, that uh, if people decide they want to stay Christian, I think they will be better Christians if they take very, very seriously the reasons many other people are deciding not to. And so I want Christians, I, uh, if I could say it this way, I think Christians can be very dangerous unless they learn about the failures of our religious tradition. And so yeah. uh, I, I want pe- even the people who stay, I want them to take this way more seriously than, than most have so far. Yeah. I'm always, I think it's funny. Like, uh, you know, I told you I live out here in Kansas and it's pretty common in the summertime to be driving down the road and you've got a bunch of cattle in a field and then there's one that's somehow gotten outside the fence and he's <laughs> yes. like standing on the road eating grass out of a crack, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I've always been like amazed, especially since we started doing this podcast and stuff at, you know, we we're in a time right now where whether you want to call it a fad or a or a, a, a movement or whatever you want to call it, there's a lot of people like questioning evangelicalism and whether yeah. they want to stay. And I'm always like shocked by the reaction of mainstream evangelicalism where, you know, when, when a a cow gets out of the fence, you, you got to patch the fence, but you, 
you go after the cow that got out. <laughs> and it seems like the reaction is just to like, patch the fence, that one's gone. You know, like, <laughs> it's like, once you're outside the fence, their only concern is like protecting the others from you, <laughs> yes, you know, that yes. you might show somebody else a way out, whether that's your intention or not. Gosh, why, Casey, why is that? I love that. I can see a parable coming. There once was a farmer who had a hundred sheep and one escaped <laughs> the fence and the farmer <laughs> doubled the thickness of the fence and built it three times as high so that the current cows couldn't get out and the old cow couldn't get back in. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. It's, it sounds smarter when you say my thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's good. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's this sort of sad thing. I, I, Okay, I'll just say it. I think there's a lot of clergy, and I say this without being critical, but I was there, so I understand this. There's a lot of clergy who feel the only way to keep people in is by keeping them ignorant or by keeping them afraid or by, in a sense, keeping them so busy and well-entertained inside that they don't have time to even think about leaving. And... um the, the, I mean, in one sense, I can see how they would feel that way. But in another sense, wouldn't it be nice if the Christian faith was actually so compelling that people wanted to stay in spite of there being persecution and difficulties and misunderstanding? In other words, wouldn't it be great if people actually wanted to stay because of the content and not because of either the entertainment and rewards on the one side or threats and punishments on the other side. And I actually think if, if it's worth staying for, we ought to highlight the actual content <laughs> and not have to <laughs> b- bolster it up so much. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree with that more. Um, one of the things, I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, some of the failures of Christianity, uh, a big part of the beginning of your book, it kind of goes through, certain area christian history generally and on how institutionally it seems to have failed right like Mm -hmm. if you if you look at it as a whole and i think one of the advantages you know that that the church might have had two three four hundred years five all going all the way back is the only information you got came from there so they could tell it to you however they wanted and then you either listened or or killed as a heretic so like not a lot of options but one of the things that we were sold uh, was this idea of the transformative power of, of Christ, right? Where it's going to change your life. If you have a real authentic interaction with Jesus, that it, or I should say, maybe they throw the Holy Spirit in there, that it will change your life and you'll be on this path. The word they would use would be sanctification, right? But then you, you learn about Christian history and how it's generally, it's hard to not look at it as a, a net negative. And when you see that compared to what you were told was the power of, of Christianity, it, I think that's one of the first things for me that became really hard to stomach. And then you, you know, yeah. you look at the inquisition, the crusades colonization, and it, that's when you start wondering like, okay, so where is, where is God? Like is God yeah. wasn't with the Christianity of the institution, yeah. but so I guess I, I'm curious as to what your thoughts on all of that is, is like in, in that time, like, is where, where is God? What is God? Whose side? I don't want to say whose side yeah. is God on because yeah. God would be for everyone, but I think you understand what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah. You know, it actually, I'd, I'd have to say, Sam, the writing of this book pushed me farther in the direction just because I had to write about that history and kind of refresh my 
memory and, and do a bit of additional research. It pushed me, pushed me farther in the direction of saying, uh, and I'm not saying this is true. I'm just saying it's worth considering mm-hmm. that Jesus never planned on starting a religion at all. Um, Jesus was a Jew who was proposing a different way to be Jewish to his fellow Jews. And whenever he got a chance to speak to Romans or Syrophoenicians or whoever he was talking to, a different way to be human to them, just a different way to be human. And that the the fact that this religion grew up uh, with this history could actually be a net distraction from Jesus and his message, um, especially because it's pretty clear that what Jesus was talking about and what Christianity have talked about has talked about in its many different forms have not been the same thing. Um, yeah. You know, the, one yeah. little cliched way to say it is there's the religion of Jesus. In other words, the view that Jesus had, the things he f- struggled for, the things he cared about, the, the practices that sustain him. And then there's the religion about Jesus, where we developed a bunch of opinions and teachings and requirements and so on um, the, as a religion. And that the, the, it, it doesn't take too much to see a pretty big gap between the two. And, and there are ways that people resolve that. Some of them say, well, um, Jesus was just getting it started. We really needed Paul to get it on the right track. And then we really needed Augustine and Aquinas and Luther and Calvin and Benny Hinn and uh, and and uh, uh, Hillsongs to really get it to where, uh, you know, it, it was supposed to be or something like that. Right. But I, I'd rather look at it more the way you said a minute ago. Whatever God is, <laughs> uh, God is out there in the world apart from religion. If you want to take it from the Bible, the Holy Spirit is moving over the surface of the earth before there are any people, much less any religion. Uh, so whatever God is, we'd have to say, you know, God is not the exclusively owned property trademarked by one different rel- one religion or another, but that God would be connected to everything. And um, and so if, if we say that's that's where we have to start by finding God. Then it then it makes us have different expectations of religious communities. Um, and one of the expectations that a lot of sectors, not all, but a lot of sectors of the Christian religion, have asked us to believe is that they're the only right one, or they're and and in fact they're the one that's from God, and all the other ones are actually from the devil, and that um, that if people aren't smart enough or humble enough or gullible enough or whatever to accept them as the only right religion, that God will torture them forever uh, in, a, in a really horrific way. Um, and uh, and I just, you know, there are a whole lot of us who say, if that's the rules of the game for being a Christian, yeah, then count yeah, yeah. me out. Yeah. You don't have to sugarcoat it on this show. You can just say that Catholics <laughs> are going to hell. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I think what gets tough is when you're, I think it does. I think, you know, what you, what you said, whatever God is. And I like that because I think what gets tough is when you're kind of, when you're on the fence, right. When you're trying to figure out where you're going in light of some of the things you've learned and where you're going to end up. And and when you still have this idea or concept of God, that is that somehow that, especially if it's still aligned with Christianity, that God is aligned with that. And that is correct. Like when you see it go awry and you begin to question where God is, I think, the question ends is like, if, if God, then why this? Like, why, yeah. if God, why did this happen? Why did we get yeah. stuck with, which makes it, yeah. I think the jumping off point for a lot of people to say, I guess, I, 
if that God, then no God. And I think what yes. you're saying is there's uh, you're talking about reframing all of your expectations yeah. and understandings of who and what God is. Yeah, I think that's safe to say. Um, there's a whole lot, you know, there's an old cliche, preachers use this all the time. I was talking to an atheist and he said he didn't believe in God. I said, what kind of, tell me about the God you don't believe in. I don't believe in that God either. Well, there, there's, you know, that can be a bit of a sort of a cute cheap shot, but there's a certain sense to it that um, I, I think, I think it, one of the very exciting things that's happening right now is in very serious, deep Christian theologians and contemplatives and all the rest. They have moved beyond the old, big old guy on a white throne. Uh, uh, they've moved so far beyond this idea of a God who is, as Barbara Brown Taylor says, somebody sitting on a th throne who occasionally stirs up the earth with a stick. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and, and the sad thing is, though, that that very exciting theological work being done by a whole range of brilliant and good hearted theologians seldom makes it to the pew of the average church because some of those old concepts are so deeply ingrained in hymns and theological systems and so on that people just don't want to rock the boat. Yeah. Uh, I like how you, you talk about kind of like a static, the static and old way of doing things versus adventure. Um, I, one of the ways that I've kind of considered it is, you know, trajectory. Um, yeah. I think that's where the disconnect is for a lot of people. Like, well, the Bible says this, or Paul says this. And then, you know, on the, on the left, I'd say Paul says this in light of his context. So let's continue that tradition and keep moving. Exactly. Things forward. Yes. And it's fun. Cause, and I think that's the rub. And I think another thing that people are finding tough about dealing with Christianity and its current context and form, at least American Christianity, yeah. um, in particularly evangelicalism, you know, that, I know that's a lot of American Christianity, yeah. uh, but I, you know, I'm not, I, I know that mainline Protestant traditions are having some of the same struggles, but I don't think they're, I don't know that people are leaving at quite the same rate. But when you're given this idea of Christianity, it's like the final truth was disseminated about 2000 years ago and that there is no, there's nothing else after that. Anything from that's a deviation from the truth. And yeah. I, I guess, I think what I'm trying to ask is like in, in juxtaposition to that, I think a lot of people feel like they need to be combative with that or try to yeah. convince somebody to change yeah. their mind or, yeah. or come on the same journey they're, they're going on. And I'm kind of wondering how, how you would respond to that, whether or not yeah. someone feels they need to have a decision. Because you do in one side in your book talk about someone, uh, you tell a story of a woman who stands up to her father and says, this is where we're at now and you need to respect yeah. that. And yeah. then there, there's no real like, you can come on this journey or not. So- with all that in mind, I'm just kind of curious how you'd respond. Yeah. So um, here's the problem. Uh, on one level, it's not just that individuals are having problems and they they ask questions about the Christian faith and they get unsatisfactory answers. I mean, that's that's a problem. And maybe some folks listening say, yeah, that's my problem and that's all I'm really worried about. But I, I think they'll also understand that right now, white Christians in the United States are organizing politically and they're organizing politically in ways that will really hurt black and brown and Asian Christians and non-Christians. And they're organizing in ways that really will hurt LGBTQ people 
uh, and their families. And they're organizing in ways that really hurt the environment. And when you hurt the environment, you hurt everybody. And so uh, because that's the case, and because so much is at stake, uh, I, I encourage people when they feel they can to find a way, the way I say it in the book is to announce and renounce, to be able to, to, to let people know I'm at a different place. I want nothing to do with the Christianity that's linked with white supremacy. I want nothing to do with the Christianity that's linked with an, destroying the environment. I'm trying to do something different. And, um, uh, and I know sometimes it's just not worth it or people are too exhausted or they know the people in question and the people in question know them. And it just may not feel worth worthwhile to say anything else, but for an awful lot of us, it would, I think it would do us good and it would do the world good. And it would in fact do good to the people who we upset by, by just letting them know, sorry, I don't go along with that. And, and, you know, they'll say, what do you mean? You say, I don't need to go into it, but I just do need to let you know, I don't go along with that, you know, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I know that's something that a lot of, you know, we, that's something we've come across a lot um, since really getting this off the ground is that most people's experiences, they have a really difficult time having those conversations with family and I get it. I, you know, I, it's a little easier for your family to know where you're at when you start publishing your opinions yes. on the internet. You know, so I haven't had that conversation <laughs> really, but they, they, yeah. they know where things are. <laughs> you know, my, um, uh, can I give, if, if this could be useful, I have a little script I recommend. I, I practice this and sort of fine tuned it and I use it all the time. It's five words. Wow. I see that differently. Those are, that's my script. And, yeah. uh, and you know, use it if you want, adapt it if you want. But the idea is instead of saying you're wrong, or you're such a bigot, or that is so backwards and anti-intellectual, which just gets in a fight and hurts relationships to say, wow, which is my way of saying, look, you need to know, I have some feeling about this. I'm not yelling at you. I'm not screaming at you, but I'm just saying, wow, (laughs) wow. I see that differently. Uh, I'm defining myself. And almost always when I say that, a person will say, what do you mean? You know, how could you see it differently? And if it's in public, what I usually say is, I don't want to go into it right now. But if you'd like to ask how I came to see it differently, if you're really curious, I'll be got, glad to explain it to you sometime in, in private. And the reason I do that is not because I'm afraid to have a conversation in public, um, but it's because if people are in public, they have to perform their loyalty to the in-group. And so they can never afford to actually listen. Um, and so it almost always ends up with both mm-hmm. sides banging egos together. And that just hardens each person in their predicament. So that's why I, I think often it's better to wait and see. And if the person's curious, then they can come and ask you. And if they come and ask me, I very often will say, listen, I really want to make this clear. I don't want to have an argument with you. And I'm not saying you have to think the way I do. If you're curious about how I think and how I came to think that way, Again, I'm not interested in you arguing me back into the way I used to think, but if you really are curious, I'll be glad to share that with you. That way, I'm, I'm, I'm setting uh, an agenda that I'm willing to have a conversation about. That's so true. Like, yeah. the, like constantly having to reaffirm your loyalty yeah. to, to the tribe 
rather yeah. than find common ground with it. You know, it's funny, like I'm in sales and I do a lot of sales training with people. And um, that's why he had to leave Christianity. It was just too much of a moral <laughs> conflict. I am unmoored and so happy. <laughs> just, just spending this money. <laughs> so one of the one of the things that we always teach in uh you know, in these classes, when you reach it, when you hit an objection with somebody that you're trying to talk to about something, you know, that they yeah. need is feel felt found. Mm. And it, it, it's a really powerful because because what you're trying to do is demonstrate empathy, right? Yes. You can't demonstrate empathy in the conversations that we're talking about. Yeah. But while still affirming your loyalty to the tribe and, yes. and feel felt found is like, hey, I know how you feel. And I felt that way myself before. Here's what I found. Yeah. And I think that that that's part of what's missing in the discourse. Yeah. Between the two. Yes. I, I'm curious, yes. like, so one of the things that we've talked about a lot, you know, and um, there's there's a lot of disconnection points with people who grew up in evangelicalism. It's it's it never seems to be like a, a, a couple of reasons why that's it's fallen apart. And, and I know for me, like as the little pieces started to fall off, you know, I kind of was more honest with myself about the fact that like, man, I don't really have any connection to this. Like I don't have mm -hmm. any like warm and fuzzies. Like I don't feel like I'm spiritually invested mm -hmm. in any of this. One of the things that we've talked about is like with people close to us who are in the church and would like, you know, you always hear the, the people in the church make like these lists where they're like, in my life, it's God, it's my spouse, it's my children and my country in that order. <laughs> yeah. And what you find when you talk to people that you're close to that, that feel that way is like, you spend very little of your time talking about faith or, or how it relates tell a lot of the things that are going on in their lives. Like that was, there was very little talk of that in the circles that I was in when I was a part of evangelicalism, but we talked about politics and just like this partisan nonsense, like all the time. Yes. I, I feel like my conclusion from that is like, okay, regardless of what you say, like that to me tells me that, that this is more important. This is more core to your identity yes. than the faith that you proclaim is, is number one in your life. And like, yeah. I'm just curious, like, what do you, what do you think is, what is, what's missing right now in the church that's putting people in that position or that's letting them lead themselves into that position? Yeah, gosh, uh, Casey, first, that's super well described, I think. Um, so maybe if I, I don't want to go on too long a rant here, but maybe I could say this here, we're three white guys in the United States talking about Christianity, the Christianity brought here by white people, and the racial dimension of Christianity is such a big deal. Um, you know, this a version of Christianity had to tell European people that they could come and dispossess millions of people of their land. I mean, that takes some nerve. You know, that really takes some nerve. And they had to have a theological justification um, to do that. It tells me there's something wrong with that form of theology to begin with. Um, and, and maybe it wasn't as bad when it first came, but it would have gotten a lot worse by doing that kind of justification. And then they decide it's okay to enslave, to, to kidnap 12 or 13 million people, bring them to the United States, enslave them for their lives, make them have children, often through 
uh, whole systems of rape so that then they can produce more slaves. And this goes on, you know, for uh, a couple hundred years uh, uh, to, you know, 200 over uh, almost 250 years. And you think for a religion to support that something really had to be wrong with it. Now, if you have a religion that has that much wrong with it, the people who benefit from that religion have to invest a whole lot of energy to tell themselves it's great and it's right and it's the only way you're allowed to think. So if I put that kind of a historical framework on it, and then I realize, oh, no wonder why the religion that I grew up with invested so much energy in making us feel that we were great and also in keeping us from learning the full truth about our history. <laughs> I, I start to get a feel of why there's so much intensity around it, you know? And, and so that when a person says, God, my country, my family, part of what they're saying is, I need a justification for the whole system that got us here to where we are right now. And I'm on the side of keeping that justification going. I, I hope that's not too cynical. I don't think anybody thinks that consciously. I, I think all of this would be on a, on a kind of subconscious level, not located in one individual, but located sort of something that disseminates almost like, you know, a, like a, a collective conscience. Yeah. Yeah. Like a collective consciousness or, or, or like some, computer software that resides across hundreds and hundreds of individual computers, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah. I think some of that is, is going on because look, if, if you, if that person, that nice person who says, I put God first, my family second, you know, my country third, um, all that that person has is good, warm feelings. They don't mean I love to enslave people or they don't mean anything like that. But I think that's part of what they got. That's part of what they inherited. No, they didn't even know they inherited it. They still might not know they inherited it, but it's part of what, what I think we're actually dealing with. Yeah. It makes me think of a couple of things like um, as far as everyone kind of working in the system together, because it's what they were given. It made me, it makes me think of like the, the reasons for, like group stonings, right? So yeah. no one, no one's responsible for the killing blow, right? It's like everyone yes. can wash their hands clean of murder in some way. Uh, and then something else, this comes up a lot between Casey and I too, because one of the things that we've tried to do is like recognize that, like the, recognize that the people who are in evangelicalism are not like, of course, none of them are just like carte blanche, bad people. Like most of them are very regular people going about their very regular lives. And of course that has impacts and ripple effects and yeah. continues to keep certain systems going uh, despite their understanding or knowledge of it. But it's, I think what's always tough is like when you look at people on the powerful side who are, who are using that to keep these systems going uh, to yeah. propagate their power it's this isn't to like let Christianity off the hook or anyone who's part of participating in the ills of it off the hook, but we we'll talk about like how people will use. I I wonder how much people just use like dominant narratives to amass and collect their power at the top. So like before there was Christianity, people were still conquering and enslaving and hurting. Yes, and they were using yes. the names of different gods and yes. and quoting different reasons for why that was good and right. Yes. And yes. it's like, in some sense, the worst parts of Christianity are the worst parts of humanity. And that yes. 
that's not to say all the bad is the bad parts and Christianity is actually good and the good parts are the real yeah, thing. Right, that's, right. I'm not trying to convolute that, but there is this idea that like people aren't, it, it's, it doesn't matter what the religion would have been. Yeah. Uh, or it, it, you eliminate religion, right? And what's the, whatever the dominant narrative is that someone can yeah. use to persuade in the mass power is what will probably be used. Yeah, you know, I I sometimes try to say it to people like this. And again, you're right. This isn't to let anybody off the hook, but it's just to try to uh well, it's it's to try to let everybody get on the hook in another way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um and it's to say let's say that there's some beautiful, wholesome, healthy thing going on in the world. And then you have some real scoundrels who are doing horrible, terrible things. Isn't it inevitable that the scoundrels will try to camouflage themselves in the good things that are going on in the world, right? Uh, And so, uh, I mean, that is just absolutely inevitable. Um, The worst people will be glad to use the best things to cover up the worst things that they're doing. And what's sad about this though, is that when some of us start seeing that happening and because it brings benefit to us, we don't call, uh, call it out. And, mm-hmm. and when that happens, those people aren't so innocent anymore. Those innocent people who are being used by other people, they actually have been won over to, to it. And, and this is the thing that you would think we still aren't at the hundred year mark from the Holocaust and from the Nazi, the Nazi Germany. One of the things that we learned about the Holocaust, I, I was born in 1956. And, and so I was born 11 years after world war II ended. And I don't think I even heard of the Holocaust till I was probably around 10 years old. So it was, you know, people weren't talking about it uh, much. Right. But when you learned about it, what you learned is that, normal German people who had would never have done anything like this before find themselves participating, driving the trains and bringing the food to the, uh, you know, to the work camp. And, and they found themselves part of this whole system. And, uh, and what that to me is, is this cautionary tale, not that boy, those Germans are bad, but that we all better be careful. And, I suppose that's one of the things I hope this book, Do I Stay Christian, does for the people who decide to stay Christian. I just hope it helps them see, look, your religion has been used to do some horrible, horrible things before. If you're going to occupy this religion, you better be on guard (laughs) because it it could be in the process of doing similar things again. And I I actually think that's happening on many levels. Um, And and, and as you say, though, it's not just Christians. Today, um, earlier today, I got an email from a rabbi friend of mine, and she was just in Israel, and she witnessed the Israeli army uh, demolishing a Palestinian family's home. And she said she'd read about house demolitions, um, but she actually witnessed it and stood with the family as they watched their home be destroyed by the representatives of the government that claims to be the representatives of her religion. And so now here she comes back to the United States and, and she, what's she going to do? She's trying to tell her fellow Jews what is happening in Israel is against everything we stand for. 
Um, and, and some of her fellow Jews say, thanks for telling us the truth. And some of them say, you're a traitor, you're, you know, whatever. It's going on everywhere. It's, it's, mm. it, as you say, it's a human problem. But here's the, the thing that doesn't let Christians off the hook. Christians, there are more of them than any other religion. They think they're persecuted, but they're actually the majority, the largest religion in the world, certainly the dominant one in America. Um, it's the richest religion by far. More wealth is owned by Christians than any other religion, and more wealth is owned by Christian institutions than any other religious institutions. And perhaps most scary of all, Christians own the most weapons by far, and the most nuclear weapons by far. And so, uh, man, we have a big responsibility to call our fellow Christians to account whenever we can. Yeah, uh, man, that's a lot. Um, what you also said, Casey made this joke once that stuck with me because if anything convinces me that I shouldn't stay in Christianity, it's this. He's like, if you found out that the people at the uh, top of a TGI Fridays were doing all sorts of terrible things and then covering it up at each TGI Fridays location, it's like you would stop eating at TGI Fridays. <laughs> I was like, probably would. I don't need that. I don't need TGI Fridays in my life. Maybe just won't go back. And that Jack Daniel's eating. barbecue so burger. That's another parable. Casey's yeah. apparently a master of parables. The master of parables. <laughs> yeah. So we focused a good bit on... Um, some of, I, th- I mean, responding to some of the negative reasons, the, the reasons to leave, I think is probably the most helpful for a lot yeah, of people. We, we've talked about why you hate Christians, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> but some of the reasons to stay, I, I, you know, I think, I mean, to me, the most compelling one's Jesus. Uh, that's where I've fallen. I find that to be this the easiest thing to, to keep myself calibrated in some sense. Though I have noticed this, um, maybe you've noticed it too. I'm curious. Uh, I, I feel like I've noticed this like shift in in people who maybe left i guess yeah people who have left christianity to be like jesus actually wasn't that great he was kind of an asshole too and he sucked uh he was and so i haven't really seen what their points are um have you seen that is that something you yeah yeah what, what what's going on there because i well, don't pick that up but I don't yeah know. so so actually the place where i dealt with this the most is a book that i wrote that the probably the fewest people have read of any of the books i wrote but i wrote a book once called the last word and the word after that which was a kind of a novel but its theme was uh the subject of hell and what part of what i did in that book is i went and read every and took seriously every single thing jesus ever said that sound that sounded like he was talking about hell, anything remotely related to hell. And what a lot of people do is they read those passages and say, see, Jesus was all about this too. Now, and so I understand why they would feel that way. A bunch of things I could say about that, uh, but that's one of the reasons I think people say that. Another is um, there's all of this apocalyptic stuff in, in, uh, especially Matthew records it, but it's also a bit in Luke and, and quite a bit in Mark. And they see that, and that just sounds wacky to our ears. Again, there's things we can say about that, but I I think that's one of the other things that really bothers people. And then there's a couple of other places where, um, you know, like for example, there's the story of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman or the Canaanite woman. Yeah, and it, it's yeah. a place where where I think it's impossible to read that story and make Jesus look good. Um, and I think part of what to me is remarkable is that. Uh, the gospels actually include that story. And then you have to say, if they know this doesn't make Jesus look good, why would they include the story? And that to me is super, super interesting. I've actually written some about that. We could talk about that if we want, if we want to. Um, And 
but and if there's one other thing I would say, and this is a bit tricky. See, part of the problem is like it wouldn't be so bad if Christians just said, look, we're all a mess and and the Christian religion has made huge mistakes and we've got a long way to go. Um, but Christians say, no, we're God's people and we're the representatives of God. And so it's almost like they raise the expectations, right, that they have of them. And in a certain way, Christians have raised the expectations people have of Jesus to such a level that either you have to redefine what you mean by a good person or, uh, you know what I mean? It creates this, it creates this dilemma. Yeah. Like, so for, for example, with that story of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman, what I'd say is the gospel writers make a critical decision to show Jesus sort of before our very eyes continuing to grow. Because up until that point, he's only considered himself as having a mission in relation to his own people. And then he meets this woman who is so sincere and so persistent and so obviously clever and smart that he said he he you know he changes his mind before our eyes, um, and I I think to the the gospel writers this shows that they had a, they weren't trying to present a Jesus who was the same as we're trying to present. They felt that one of Jesus's strong points is that he continued to grow throughout his life, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, and for some reason that bothers people today. Yeah. It bothers people a lot. Cause it, that would, that just flies in the face of the, I mean, that's kind of a linchpin idea. The, the idea of who Jesus is for evangelicals is like the linchpin idea. Like if yeah. Jesus can grow, it means he wasn't perfect. If he wasn't perfect, it means his sacrifice didn't work. And if his sacrifice yeah. didn't work, it means there's no hope and everything's worthless. Like, yes, that's exactly. That's on. it. And, and, and then you say, well, where did they get this idea that a sacrifice was necessary? And then they'll say, oh, they'll quote a book, uh, a verse in Leviticus. Well here, and, and then, and then you say, <laughs> why do you think quoting that verse in Leviticus ends the story. And then they'll say, because of the in inerrancy of scripture, right? So it's this big circular argument. Here's the interesting thing. Um, in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, here, this is a direct quote. Hosea is saying what God's, he, he believes God says. And God says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. <laughs> or or Micah or Micah says, does God want a million sacrifices? No, God doesn't care about that. What God wants is for you to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly before God. So what's so interesting is that Christians chose the verse in Leviticus and made that absolute and conveniently forget about Hosea and Micah. They could have chosen Hosea and Micah, you know, <laughs> and, and, but but they yeah. didn't. And there are all kinds of reasons for that we could explore. But just one other little interesting trivia. There's only one place in the Gospels where Jesus says, go and learn what this means. And he says that in relation to Hosea saying that God does not desire sacrifice. So what I think would be a more accurate thing to say is the Bible contains a big argument about sacrifice. Some people believe it's necessary. Other people don't. And uh, and that argument is there in the Bible, but we sort of sweep that away and just choose one side of the argument. I love that's that's so good. I love it. I I want. I wish. Okay, I, I don't have a ton of time left. I'd love to stay and sit on this and talk about Jesus for a little bit longer. But there is what maybe we could circle back. But there's something that I really do want to talk about, uh, and this might just wrap us up. But the idea that you propose towards uh, in the latter half of your book 
is uh, you talk about the cult of innocence. And yeah. I think that is like one of the most uh, poignant things in the book. Because I feel like that describes our culture in such a clear and concise term. Uh, yeah. And this is another thing that Casey and I have a lot of conversations about because, you know, even personally, I find so actually, why don't you just go ahead and give like mm-hmm. describe what you mean by the cult of innocence before I yeah. even explain how that affects me in any way. Sure. Well, people okay. to know what I'm talking about. What, one way to do it would be to say that if you're on Twitter or Facebook or whatever else, what you realize is we're constantly shaming one another. Um, and, and when we're all at risk of being shamed, we need to do something to prove that we're good. And, and it seems to me that one of the s- simplest, easiest ways to make yourself appear good is to find a victim that you defend and find the, per- the, the, a villain who's oppressing that victim for you to attack. So if you, if you defend the victim and attack the villain, you seem like a really great person. Um, and and I'm all for defending victims and I'm all for stopping villains from oppressing victims and all the rest. But what I realize is that when we continually do that as a performance in front of each other, as a way of saying, see how good I am, I attack that group and I defend that group. So here's the problem. If you want innocence, and you also want a shortcut to innocence. Shortcuts are cheating. I want to cheat my way to innocence. I want a fast and easy way to innocence. I would call that a pretty cheap and suspect kind of innocence. But it seems to be this process that we're engaging in. And uh, as people who read the book will know, it, I, I realized as I grapple with this question, do I stay Christian, that part of what drives people on both sides is what do we do about the shame that we feel and the, and the shortcuts we all want to take to get that shame off of our back. And, um, and then uh, one of the things I suggest in, in two chapters where I talk about this is that maybe after you turn, you know, 10 or 20 years old, you might as well just say, I will never be innocent. (laughs) You know, I'm beyond (laughs) innocence. That's just not even an option to me. My only hope is not to be innocent, but it's just to be good or maybe to, to keep becoming better, uh, you know, to keep on a process of hopefully I'm growing more mature and better. So in other words, maybe the whole idea of achieving innocence is a misguided, uh, a misguided venture. Yeah. And I think, but the way it's like, I think what you're saying is interesting because it's very much, I mean, you you can tell a lot of times when it's a performance. Um, yeah. I mean, sometimes people's, people's entire um, public persona and popularity and success in their the number of followers they have is simply because they repeat that cycle. But on a even on a personal level, outside of that, even it being a performance, like I, I thought about it in for me, right? In some ways, I look at what you know. I'm still pretty. In, I'm still around evangelical Christianity a lot, and mm-hmm. so is Casey. Um, and we just don't. There's a lot of things we don't talk about, which is actually there's all things we just don't talk about things anymore. Um, but it's does it almost gets to me a lot more knowing that there's just no space to talk about it anymore. And I, I get in this mindset where I'm like, I just want to say just to prove a point because I know it'll mean something. I think that's how I can get my point across to them and say, I am just not this. I'm not a bad version of it. I'm not a version of it that you think doesn't count. I'm just not it. And we'll just call it settle the score right there. Clean break. But then 
I also feel like the other to your other point that you make in the book is that like just st- almost sticking with it sometimes feels like I, I want to make that point too. Like, <laughs> yes. I, I, I want to make that point that it doesn't have to be shitty. Uh, yeah. So I get, so I feel that push and pull inside of myself yeah. and I, in whatever decision I make, no one's going to see that I'm having that struggle. Yes. Uh, yes. No one's going to see that that's a performance. Yes. Um, or that I'll never know if what decision I've made is authentic or not. And I actually really yes. struggle with that. Is is are any of my decisions authentic at this point when I'm having this internal battle? Yes. Can can I just say uh, what the way you just described that, Sam, means that that struggle means that you're examining your motives and you're trying to decide whether to do the right thing. And you're aware that you think you're doing the right thing, but it could actually be for the wrong reason. In other words, you're actually practicing self-awareness. A person who practices self-awareness, it seems to me, is less likely to go out and participate in a genocide or is less likely to join a stoning gang than a person who is just desperate to prove that they're good. And, and, and is unwilling to eat, to be anywhere other than in the category of innocent and pure and good. Um, and so it may be that that is a huge pain in your life, but it also might be one of the things that helps you be a a good person. And that might be the difference between innocent and good, you know, um, that goodness might be a sort of a messy struggle thing that's never secure. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. So that, but I I appreciate you the way you describe that, and I think that's that's something that is part of what is involved in being a morally responsible adult. I'm curious, like, because I, you know, I was thinking about it today when I was driving, but like, you know, what we've we've talked a lot about, like, what what our motives are for even talking about some of this, because yeah. you know, you get a lot of people especially people who are Christian that are like, why are you doing that? Like you, why, if, if you're not in it anymore, like, why do you keep talking about it? Why are you still, you know, dredging it up and stuff like that? And I think one of the things that, that bothers me about some of what we're talking about here, especially like the, the cult of innocence and all that is our, our, our whole culture seems to be stuck in this cycle of like, performative virtue and shaming and, and, and attack and stuff. And it seems like, you know, all the things that you guys described, like, uh, kind of setting yourself up publicly as an innocent party, like so much of that is done at the expense of the, of public well-being and like the public discourse and stuff like that. Like, it's almost impossible. It seems to have like a civil conversation about some of these topics because, of those bad actors on both sides yeah. that are always yeah. willing to like, sh- like poke a finger in somebody's chest to yeah. show like to, to demonstrate who they are and who they yeah. are. Yeah. And like, where does, where did, where does this go? I mean, yeah. yeah. Where, where, where do you think this leads down the road? Yeah. Well, you know, the, there are people right now who are planning for a civil war in the United States and you can see how they could get their wish to come true. I, I happened to be in Charlottesville at, at that um, kind of terrifying day in, in uh, August of uh, 2017. And so when January 6th, uh, 2021 happened, I just thought, yeah, I know those people. I've seen them before. And um, so that certainly is out there. And there are people 
who are some who are planning for it and others who don't even understand how they're contributing to it by by creating an us that's purely virtuous and a them that is just despicable. Um, I mean, you know, you even think with the issue of abortion, you start calling people pro-choice and then you call them baby killers and then you call them pedophiles, right? That's the latest thing in the QAnon conspiracy. So you just have to keep upping the ante of how dehumanizing they are. One of the things we learn about genocides is they almost always begin with words. Um, and for example, the Rwanda genocide, 800 people, uh, 800,000 people killed in a hundred days, mostly by their neighbors. How did that happen? Because a group of people were called cockroaches. Um, and, and the word cockroach became the way of saying they don't even deserve to live. You st- they stop being human beings. And we watched this kind of dehumanizing language going on. And so um, I, I don't know if we'll go that far, but I do know we're heading, we're doing all the things to head in that direction unless more of us wake up. And I could be wrong, but my guess is that's part of why you guys are doing this. When people say, why do you keep talking about this? It's because you're trying to help people not go in in those kinds of ugly and dangerous directions. Um, And even though that might sound really extreme, I I think it is a historical possibility that this could happen. There are even less extreme parts of it. You know, you think about the gay kid who grows up being mocked and made fun of for being gay, and then he decides to become an activist. Well, it's not because it, it could be because he's working out revenge against the people who hurt him. It could also be that he doesn't want the, the seven year old kid who grew up in the same town he did to have to go through what he did when he's 12 or 14 or whatever. It could be actually great compassion that he keeps talking about this. He wants to save people from that kind of trouble later. But maybe one last thing I could say is if you ask me what I expect, here's what I expect. I think the ugly forms of Christianity and politics and business and everything else, I think the ugly forms will get uglier. I think the violent forms will get more violent. I don't think we're at the bottom. Um, And I think the alternatives, the more beautiful forms, the more beautiful and courageous other ways of life will also intensify. And so I think what we should expect is not that things will all get better or all get worse, but they will simultaneously get better and get worse, at least in, in the foreseeable future. Well, <laughs> there's a little hope, a little, uh, and a little bit to get ready for. I feel like, I feel like, I feel like that's realistic. And yeah. I feel like what it does also is it challenges each of us to ask that third question in the book. How am I going to, how am I going to yeah. live? What kind of what are we going to do? Do I want to be? Yeah. 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 Don't well, do it. If you stay in the church, don't do it. If you leave the church, <laughs> stop dehumanizing people and purposely causing problems. <laughs> That's right. Well said two, once again. Two, uh, two quick things before we let you go. There's one part in your book that made me laugh. I don't know if you really intended it to be funny, but I laughed out loud while reading it. And you just said Christianity, especially since Galileo and Darwin, has had an uncomfortable relationship with available death. I thought that was so funny. I think it's the wording. Uncomfortable, I think, is what quote. sold me on that. Very funny. Uh, and then the other thing that really stuck out to me is uh, you also said that you were talking about taking your kayak out into the Everglades and seeing an alligator poke his head up and look at you and then submerge. 
And I think that sounds really dumb. Why I can't imagine <laughs> taking a kayak out into the Everglades where there are alligators bigger than your kayak. Is that a regular thing for you? Yeah, but th- this is one of the great things about where I live. I am less afraid of an alligator in the wild than I am of a dog in uh, in the uh, uh, in the city. Uh, so. Really. And I'm not really afraid of a dog in the city either, but I'm less afraid of an alligator. Well, that's like one reason I've, me and my wife always talk about moving to a warmer climate and I'm like, Florida is probably the only place we can afford. And her sole reason for never going to Florida is because of alligators. So yeah, now you can't afford it either. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, Brian, uh, thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. It was great to hear from you. I really appreciate your book and all your previous not that okay i haven't read all of your previous writings but i've read a couple and they've they were big impacts on me at the time that i've read them i think you're doing so much for pushing pushing christianity in the direction you would love to see it go and i just i know i i personally really appreciate it so thanks so much for joining us brian well thanks a lot and really guys keep up the good work uh uh thanks i i'm just i'm just so happy to meet you and uh hear you carrying on these kinds of needed conversations thanks Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.